This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're having a great Tuesday morning as you make your uh, wonderful commute to life. You sound winded. I'm a little winded. feel like I've been running around like a man <laughs> with his head cut off. Hey, um, by the way, uh, tomorrow is the big day. Yes. I'm going under the cauterizing knife to get rid of my gallbladder. And uh, mm-hmm. it's happening. And you know, it's funny. I don't know that I should be that excited. And I don't even know that I should be talking about it. I don't want to jinx anything. You know, I can't believe the gall... For you to bring that up. I know. <laughs> Gallbladder surgery. But I am making my I, – I think it's a weird request, but um, I'm going to ask my doctor to, to give me the gallbladder. When I leave, I want to be able to take it with me. I'm going to clean it out, tan it up a bit, and then I'm going to make it into a little coin pouch. And then you can give it to Don Shaline for his mm-hmm. 15th anniversary here exactly. at BYU Radio. Don't you think that would be great? Oh, yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. I think that is because there's silver, gold, but there's also gallbladder for yeah. the 15-year mark. Then there's the 15-year, I think, is the bile anniversary. Yeah. So that's where you give <laughs> a little gallbladder activity. Uh, no, it's exciting. So, um, you know, I'll be out the rest of the week, but it, the show will be in the capable hands of – huh. haven't thought that part through. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> boo. Boo. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. It'll be in the hands – of Jeffrey Simpson and uh, Terry Sack. That is, of course, if, uh, you know, if Jeff's child and wife are healthy and happy and there's no problems there, if Terry is done, you know, noodling his son. What? What? <laughs> Pool noodle. Yeah. Clean that up. That's cool. Um, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about small businesses, and I'm a small business owner, and cybersecurity. What am I supposed to do with cybersecurity? I mean, I'm not – I don't have a lot of high-tech people at my company, so uh, I don't even have a tech officer. So am I in danger? Yeah. And then the other side is the public. We deal with small businesses – all the Probably time. Probably maybe more than we do deal with the, yeah. the large super companies that get hacked. And so, You probably work for a small company right. statistically, right? A, a business it could be 1,000 employees maybe. That would be considered a middle, mid-level business. Mm-hmm. So are, is your company doing what they should be doing? We'll be talking about the three Bs of cybersecurity for small businesses with a professor of uh, – like a business professor. So – Important lessons for us all because it's – the problems are just as uh, just as big for the small business. In fact, probably bigger so because you probably don't have all the other advancements of high tech that uh, your the bigger companies may. So we'll get into that fun topic plus, of course, a review of some of the, the headlines, the latest headlines. Apparently, Sean Spicer may be uh, taking on a new position. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. I know. Which is weird because it makes no sense. Did you see the Steve Bannon, the reported no. Steve Bannon text? No. Oh, no. So this is all happening yesterday. Sean Spicer may be working on selecting his replacement. Yeah. He might be taking a role in the communications department, not necessarily up in front of the cameras anymore. But it would be like – it would be a promotion. 
Yeah. Supposedly. But, you know, everyone wants to be in front of the camera, but right. he'd be overseeing the entire right. communication strategy. And so the question – and then so a reporter from The Atlantic sent a text to Steve Bannon saying, hey, why aren't there more on-camera interviews? Because yesterday they held a White House press conference, no cameras, no audio. Okay, yeah, yeah. So there's so no – So an interview without really any – Way to present it <laughs> other than in a newspaper. And uh, so Bannon responded – the reason there aren't more on-camera interviews is because Sean Spicer is fat. No way. That's what it said. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. And then there was no response when they texted again to follow up on, really? Is that what you want to say? He just left it at that and moved on. Oh, yeah. That's rude. <laughs> that's, it's just. He gained weight. That's, uh... that's why there's no more on-camera interviews. Wow. <laughs> well, Oh, well, that makes sense. That's crazy. Yeah. And he's a special assistant to the president. Yeah. And a media mogul. A few months ago, Time Magazine put him on the cover saying he's the president, Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon. Also known as Lord Vader. Could be. Is it? <sighs> or the Grim Reaper. Yeah, the Grim Reaper. That was on Saturday Night Live, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. So th- that kind of uh, is the atmosphere okay. around this decision sure. that they're trying to make on who's going to communicate to the nation. The funny thing about it is for many presidents, the communication officer would be like a critical part of your administration. But in this case, President Trump seems to be his own communication right. officer. And the communication department is chasing to figure out yeah. what he's actually going to say. And as and Sean Spicer said it, that nobody is a better communicator for the president than the president. Which is obvious because he's not talking to you guys. It's also a hard thing. They, they're having a hard time filling the positions. Wrong. Because it used to be everybody in the media and anybody in the communications field would just run to this job because it it's huge for your future. Right. But apparently, you know, now it's the this, plague. This comes wrong. with some uh, baggage. <laughs> You're wrong. You keep hearing – I keep hearing Donald. That's yeah, crazy. It's like a weird echo of Donald. Oh. Anyway, we'll get into all that fun talk. Uh, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Both candidates in the race to represent Georgia's 6th Congressional District reportedly barred news outlets from campaign events the night before the special election runoff, which is today. Staffers for Republican candidate Karen Handel reportedly blocked the left-leaning outlet Think Progress from an event. According to reports from that publication, the reporters were were asked, they said they've had no problems. They've been to events over the last few weeks, no, no problems whatsoever, but yesterday they were blocked. Meanwhile, staffers for the Democratic candidate John Ossoff reportedly blocked the right-leaning outlet Free Beacon from attending an event from that same evening. Free Beacon reporters, they announced this on Twitter. Uh, that one was likely because they keep pointing out that John Ossoff doesn't live in the district he's trying to represent. Yeah, that's a problem. That's kind of something they... He doesn't want to focus on, obviously. Uh, the hotly contested election takes place today. Georgia 6 will be decided uh, with the also the South Carolina 5th Congressional District will be decided today also. That one's not getting a lot of attention, but uh, yeah. That, uh, the uh, what the South Carolina District is for the Milk Mulvaney, who left to be the budget director for Trump. Mm. Whereas oh, yeah. the one in Georgia is for Price, who is now the... Uh, HHS, Health yeah. Health and Human Services guy. So, in Georgia, the sixth uh, House election record, $50 million has been spent by both candidates. Wow. Which, you know, the entire Atlanta metro area, sorry, you've been blasted with ads for the last six so months. So, it's $100 million. No, no, 50 combined between oh, Republicans. Oh, but like, it's a record. Okay, it's yeah, a record a for any House election ever. Uh, and that the polls in that race show it's too close to call. It's like 1% separate both. I mean, think about every other... 
every other congressional seat in the country was probably a million dollar budget right. between two candidates. John Ossoff has $23 million have been donated to his campaign. The record before was uh, Paul Ryan last last cycle with $20 million, I believe. Wow. So just crazy amount of money. All of it from out of state, of course, because this is taking on a national attention mm-hmm. more than just a local. In other news, the Navy on, sun- on uh, Sunday, we talked about it yesterday a little bit, revealed the details of the final moments of the seven sailors who died aboard the destroyer after it collided with a container ship near Japan ripping open the warship and sending seawater gushing into rooms where men lay asleep. Mm. The Philippine-flagged ACX crystal plowed into the far smaller USS Fitzgerald around 2.20 a.m. Saturday, opening the hold of the sea and rapidly flooding three large compartments and included two berthing areas for 116 crew members. The ship's captain was trapped inside his cabin, which was hit directly. It was on the side of the ship that the container ship crashed into. He was airlifted to a naval hospital. 300 brave sailors under his command quickly sprang into action to contain the flooding and save the boat from ending up on the bottom of the ocean. They then navigated the damaged ship back to port uh, with only a magnetic compass and backup equipment to guide the ship. Japanese authorities are investigating uh, endangerment of traffic caused by professional negligence. I believe on the on the part of the, the container, container ship. ship yeah. Japanese media also report that the ACX Crystal made a quote sharp turn shortly before the pre-dawn crash. And it was about an hour, so they didn't even report the crash. I think until an hour later. Until later, when they so that that makes no sense either. They, like, I mean, I know there's chaos on the ship, and you but, see the well, CBS last night had a, a graphic showing the track yeah. of the container ship. And it like just all of a sudden made a turn and it crashed into the side of the the Fitzgerald and then it made a quick little loop and like headed back to where it came from. That is so with no radio signal like, explaining. Well, and what so happened. they'll I assume they'll find out what happened, but they said it could take like a year. Yeah, of course, because everything takes forever. The Coast Guard's going to be investigating. Mm-hmm. The Navy investigates. The Philippine Navy, I guess, investigates. Unbelievable. It's crazy. Uh, the 2016 election saw American voter rolls swell to more than 200 million registered voters for the first time ever, and about 198 million of those people had their voter data exposed by a Republican National Committee contractor called Deep Roots Analytics. The 25 terabytes of information were stored on an Amazon Cloud account that could be accessed and in some cases downloaded without a login. The data set included voters' names, dates of birth, home addresses, phone numbers, and voter registration details, as well as data described as algorithm algorithm predicted, which would be voter ethnicities and religions. Mm. Wow. All across, it sat, it sat on this exposed server for two hours. Yeah. If you knew how to access it, which apparently meant you click on a link, it opens because there's no login. It's right there. You could just download all the information. Get it while it's hot. So – Man alive. More more, more problems for the, the election cycle where information is just available. Yeah. And finally, this is big news. I'm going to read what? this just the way it's written. Jay-Z, mm-hmm. the rapper, who is used to go by the name – he used to go by the name Jay-Z, has changed his name once again. Entertainment Weekly has confirmed the rapper, whose real name is Sean Carter, will now go by Jay-Z. The move comes ahead of the release of his first new album in four years and the recent birth of Twins. Hold it. So, so Jay-Z, he, who used to go by Jay-Z, will now go by Jay-Z. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So before it was capital J-A-Y yeah. space capital Z. Right. Then he changed it to capital J, lowercase a, lowercase y, hyphen 
capital Z. Uh, yeah, yeah. Now it's capital J, capital A, capital Y, hyphen, capital Z. So J. Just big news. Z. Yeah, he's screaming. No, it's J. All, it's all capitals. Jay-Z! There you go. That's his new name. It's a hard name to say. I think if you worry about your name that much um, and you're changing it that much, yeah. maybe you're focused on the wrong thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, I read the story. It goes, Jay-Z, who used to go by Jay-Z, has now changed his name to Jay-Z. I'm like, what? Oh, okay. So what's your name? Capitalization. Matt, what? what's your rapper name? Uh, Matt Town Dizzle. Matt Town Dizzle. Mm-hmm. It's too long. The notorious M A T, but it's it's M. I spell it M A M small M capital A small T hyphen backslash town T O W N with intermittent capital small letters, and then Dizzle Dizzle D with three Z's E L not L E. I like Terry's better. What's that? What's Terry's? The notorious M A T T. Ooh, How notorious. about yeah. except notorious might be harder for people to spell. How about yeah. empty tizzle? Empty, like it's empty, like there's no tizzle em- in it. No, empty tizzle. Mm. Mine would be J Fed. Remember K Fed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mine would just be J Fed. You know what's funny about all of these names, including Jay Z's? My mom still doesn't know who he is. So. But, but but after my in-depth explanation, she'll know how to spell it. <laughs> I doubt it. I can't even remember what the real change was. Hey, I don't know if you guys have heard this. Um, Speaking of hot, it's uh, pretty hot in the West. We talked about it yesterday. It's still hot. Yes. More and more flights are being canceled. In Phoenix. Yeah, 118 degrees. Apparently, some planes can't take off and land at 118 degrees. You need longer runway. Yeah. The air, the physics change about how how you You get more speed. Ah. And how on earth do you sell lemonade in that? Your like, kid's dehydrated before his well, lemonade Nobody goes outside. Point. You shouldn't drink lemonade when you're dehydrated anyway. I'm just thinking these poor kids. Where are they going to make their money? And you can't mow lawns. You can't. No, most people just have gravel. What if, you're, what, what if you're a construction worker in Phoenix and you've got to work outside? I mean, that's death. Pray for the uh, midnight shift. Yeah, I bet. I bet they all want to work overnight. Where it's a nice, cool Balm. 95. Balm 95. <laughs> oh, I feel bad for them. And it's, I guess, Vegas is going to get up to 117. Right. So you don't believe in global warming? It should be 98 around here. Yeah. That's the high. I hate it. I, I'm even using my little visors on my my. Uh, you do realize you, you live in a desert. Yeah. This isn't like a, a lush forested no. no, area. We have mountains right next door. Well, you can climb up there. It'll be 20 degrees cooler oh, if it's you want. Oh, up there. But you live down here in the desert part. Yeah. You could have lived in the mountains. Yeah, I could have. You spend most of, the, most of your time in an air-conditioned room or car anyway. No, I'm free- I have to wear a jacket in here. I'm freezing. <laughs> You're sitting here talking about it being almost 100 degrees wearing a jacket. Yeah. <sighs> Good luck to all y'all. Hey, and by the way, I brought treats for everybody, saltine crackers. Oh, nice. Really? Let's yeah. all eat saltines and try to whistle. Everybody gets two of them. <laughs> two saltines for everybody. Make sure we get in those. That's just to calm your stomach, everybody. Hey, we got a great guest coming up. Scott Shackelford will be next talking about cybersecurity for small businesses. It's uh, It ain't easy, folks. It's hard to run a business anyway, but to keep it cyber safe, stick with us. We'll give you the tools. 
So as you may know, I uh, I have a, a side business where I I coach couples and I teach people how to talk. So I have a lot of people through my business and have people that work for me. And it's a scary thing when I think of cybersecurity and my responsibility to protect my clients' information. It's 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 scary, especially because I hear of all the threats on the show and then. I got to go protect myself in my business. So here to speak with us today about three B's of small business uh, cybersecurity is Dr. Scott Shackelford. He's an associate professor of business law and ethics at Indiana University. And uh, he's here to uh, walk us through an article, The Three B's of Cybersecurity for Small Businesses. Scott, thank you so much for being with us here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. You bet. It's. Um, do, do you sense in all of your business experience, are, are small businesses a bigger target, small and medium-sized biz- businesses, a bigger target for cybersecurity issues, or is it just we, we're less prepared? I think they're an underappreciated target. A lot of the attention you know, goes to the big hacks, whether it's Target or the Office of Personal Management, whatever the case may be. But we oftentimes don't hear about what's happening with the store down the street. And oftentimes those are pretty significant breaches that are happening as well. Maybe they're not at the scale. Maybe there's not tens of millions of people impacted. Uh, but frankly, it's a big deal to those companies. It's been a big deal to their customers. After all, just one fraudulent wire transfer could make the difference between a company staying in business and oh, going out of business. It's so true. And and people trusting you long term. I mean, if all of a sudden you've got to send out an email to everybody that does business with you, that you've been hacked, holy cow, the PR problems, and just the fact that you don't necessarily know what you're doing, per se, is it, um, and it, it's not, this isn't even really about website management, is it? No, no, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, in fact, it's, that's part of the problem, right, is that it can just be so confusing if you're a small business to know where do you put that next dollar of investment or that next hour of time, Right. Um, that's why we tried to kind of lay out some bare bones, some basic ideas in this article to help organize uh, thoughts, if nothing else, and organize strategy for these small businesses, because it's a really complex threat landscape out mm. there to manage. Totally. Mm-hmm. Give, us, give us an example of, uh, I mean, a small business, a small to medium-sized business could still be a, a medium-sized business could be 1,200 employees or something, right? Um, talk about, right. Talk about uh, what some examples of smaller to medium-sized businesses that have been hacked and are having cybersecurity issues. Yeah, well, one area that's been in the news a lot lately, maybe you or your listeners have heard about it, is the healthcare context, right? Yeah. So whether it's kind of smaller clinics or whether it's kind of regional insurance companies, we had a couple of breaches, for example, here in Indiana, with some regional insurance companies that wound up losing all of their employees' information, but also all of their patients' information as well in a breach just a few months back. Um, So unfortunately, this is something that's happening with a fair amount of regularity. One of the kind of new tools that's gotten a lot of attention is this whole ransomware uh, issue, right? Yeah. We saw just a couple, yeah, just a couple weeks ago now with this uh, WannaCry uh, campaign that went around the world. But again, the the good news is even though this stuff is scary, there's some really basic steps that companies can take to help mitigate this risk. Yeah, you don't have to you don't have to take the hit. Uh, The ransomware scare was where uh, somehow they would get hacked. Uh, the, The hackers would get information about the company and then basically hold it for ransom and the company would have to pay money in order to get their information back. That's right. That's right. It's basically kind of like taking up all your files, putting them in a 
uh, kind of a special desk drawer and locking them and saying, if you want to get the key to unlock those files, you got to pay us. Uh, and basically, you have to pay in Bitcoin, which is this you know virtual currency that makes it really hard to trace, which is why cyber criminals like it so much. Wow. I mean, it's a scary, scary thing. Before we get to some of your solutions, um, I, I guess part of this is it's 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 knowledge that we may not have in the small business level of of what's mm-hmm. going on. I know phishing's a big issue. Talk about phishing and and how that could that that's huge. That that's a, that's probably an, a, a pretty common way that uh, hackers are getting in. Yeah, it's a common and really fast-growing way. So this is basically the idea that, you know, it, it's not somebody trying to brute force their way into your systems. It's just an email coming in that maybe looks like it's coming from one of your colleagues or your boss, um, and it's requesting you to do something, you know, that doesn't look that uh, threatening, maybe opening a link to a spreadsheet. Hey, look at this before our meeting on Monday morning. If it's 4.30 on a Friday afternoon, maybe your guards aren't up and you might click on that, right? And it doesn't take very much for to have your systems compromised. And unfortunately, it's the case that not only do we need our managers and our leaders kind of on board and knowledgeable about how easy it is to get hacked in this way, but also all the people helping them. So all the support staff need to be aware of this as well. That's one of the main ways that companies are actually breached is when the administrative staff uh, clicks on these links. They tr- they think they're helping uh, obviously, but they wind up actually hurting. Oh, and and then all of a sudden you you get one of these emails. You send the password to the server or whatever out, and the next thing you know, you're either having ransom issues and they're holding you hostage, or um, you've you've been breached and your data's all gone. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, in fact, you know, we we heard a lot about the, the DNC breach yeah. uh, this last year. And, you know, it was it was John Podesta's email that was breached, but John actually wasn't the one that kind of clicked on uh, the link to reset his Gmail password. It was one of his aides that said, hey, John, you really got to do this. It looks like a legit request from Google to reset your password. Ugh. So, again, that just goes to show that we, we got to have a much higher level of cybersecurity awareness here. It's kind of basic cyber hygiene. Well, and you know, when the whole Hillary Clinton server in the – in the base or the basement of her house or whatever, when that was all going down, I had a lot of sympathy for her because, I mean, I'm a small business owner and I'm not running for president. She probably should have had a lot better security. But I'm thinking, you know, you just make what with what's due, what you can. You don't want to spend a ton of money. You don't want to have a server room. You don't know exactly what you're doing and you trust in people to do it for you. Are there people out there for small business uh, and businesses that that they can afford, or is this kind of is this something that you know it, you have to have a certain threshold of income and revenue in order to pay for such security? Yeah, well, I mean, the good news is is there's some really basic steps that we all can take, small businesses and medium sized businesses, to do a much better job at mitigating the risk, right? So, for ransomware, for example, the easiest thing to do is just to keep backups of all of your data both on-site, but also up in the cloud. So, you know, worst case, maybe you wind up losing a day or so of Mm. your data if you are hit by ransomware. You don't have to pay the Bitcoin as a result of that, right? Yeah. Um, So we just have to be kind of be aware of some of those basic basic approaches. Also, you can think about, and this is something that more, both companies and even some local governments are doing. They're investing in cyber risk insurance. 
policies. Now, these things aren't perfect, and you really have to look closely at the way they're written because sometimes, just like with other insurance policies, you think they cover things that maybe they don't wind up covering. But this can make the difference, again, between a small business being out the $300,000 fraudulent wire transfer or the $500 deductible, right? (laughs) These policies have kept you know, small businesses in business. Yeah. Something to take a look at. Yeah. And I I guess you make the decision based on what's your risk threshold. Like, I mean, do you have a lot of data that could be taken? Uh, Do people sue? So Mm -hmm. if my data was breached at a hospital or a clinic, do you see very many of uh, the patients suing the companies for the breach? Is anyone doing that? Yeah, certainly if they're the victims of identity theft, um, if they have to spend a lot of their own money to mitigate uh, whatever has happened as a result of this breach, you know, so maybe uh, it's, it's involved, you know, a couple of years of clearing things up with, uh, you know, different credit monitoring services and credit cards and all of that jazz. So, I mean, if people are, are hurt, then, yeah, they do wind up suing. There's been a couple of class actions. Uh, and some other interesting lawsuits recently as well. We've had the first kind of product liability uh, lawsuit. Typically, this is kind of a liability-free zone. When we talk about cybersecurity, we haven't really held uh, or held software companies uh, responsible, for example, for bugs in their in their software very often. But we're starting to see that maybe potentially start to change. So it's something that a lot of companies are paying attention to because this could help to establish, at least over the kind of the medium term, more of a standard of cybersecurity care. So at least businesses would know what's expected in that case. Mm, mm. You, um, in all of your experience, you've you've now put together uh, some tools, just some basic rules for small businesses. Uh, be aware, be organized, be proactive. Talk to us about being aware. I know you've already mentioned a few things about how we can be more aware but who needs to who do we need to make sure are aware when it comes to small businesses who in the business absolutely i mean it's a bit easier for small businesses cuz i can just take the easy cop out and say well really all of us you know yeah, be aware everyone ideally, right? right absolutely uh, that that's easier said than done of course and even the companies that do the cybersecurity awareness training that really runs the gambit in terms of quality cuz you know what these trainings are like right i mean yeah. sometimes they're half an hour you're clicking through you're not really paying attention um, so it, it, it is worthwhile to look at what options are out there with regards to some basic training. Even Nova uh, actually has some decent cybersecurity training for phishing, for example. And just going through that with some of your employees actually could be pretty beneficial. Um, and they, they turn it into more of a game. So when you can make it more engaging, more entertaining, that can help a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, it really has to be, if nothing else, and at least the manager's, those that have access and the ability to make important decisions, such as authorizing wire transfers, and any of their kind of immediate subordinates. I think it's really important kind of when in doubt to really instill that lesson. Just don't click, double check. At the end of the day, pick up the phone. Uh, if it looks like it's something even remotely uh, unexpected, uh, that's it's always good to double check. So I think just kind of instilling that extra level of due diligence is the best idea. And frankly, that's pretty cheap to do. Yeah. It's really just a uh, little time consuming. That's all. Well, and instead of being annoyed with the people constantly checking with you, you should be praising them for constantly that's checking. Exactly right. That's a, and, and, and some companies are doing that. Right. So they're giving incentives. And prizes, you know, for employees that take, you know, cyber hygiene seriously. And then when they do stuff like that, you can have a little reward scheme set up uh, to reward those companies, show that it's something that you take seriously. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you get a $50 bonus for finding a phishing attack or whatever. How cool would that be? Oh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because maybe you're preventing you know, thousands of dollars of breaches there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, a, I have a, a friend that has a company where their, their job is they go in and hack – uh, mm-hmm. Companies mm-hmm. hire them to go in and try to attack their weaknesses, um, and then what they do too is they they then um, monitor the organization, and um, they they can see who's who's doing more riskier behavior, who's got more mm-hmm. emails coming in, who's doing all these things, and then they specifically target training for each employee based on their use of mm-hmm. the internet, and it's a pretty it's a pretty advanced program, and I, I sit and I think, mm-hmm. boy, eventually – but again, like you're saying, if we can get on Nova and go take a fishing class um, for relatively cheap, uh, then all of a sudden this is – there's really no excuses except just people didn't know. They weren't aware. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. That's exactly right. Uh, but but you're correct. If you can afford it, having a company like that do a penetration test, which is what those are called, and see where the weak points are in your networks – and also where the weak points are in your personnel, yeah. that can make a really big difference. So, I mean, it's it's one of those things we, you know, we mitigate the risk of physical break-ins by taking all of these precautions, security cameras, security systems, all that stuff, and making some of those more proactive investments can make a, a really big difference is, for warding off these kinds of breaches. Yeah. Do you, um, I mean, because the other thing that happens is is how fast the internet changes and how our attack today will be completely different tomorrow um, how do you stay on the cutting edge of and, and stay aware of the cyber attacks as they're coming? Mm-hmm. Not not well, on the – we were always kind of on the bleeding edge mm-hmm. instead of the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. And this, this, frankly, is some of the good news about being a small and medium-sized business, right? Because if you were a big multinational company with tremendously valuable intellectual property, you really do have to be worried – about the most sophisticated criminal organizations, maybe even nation states trying to breach your system. But if you are a mom-and-pop shop or a relatively small operation, you might not be uh, uh, the target in the same way as these, as these bigger companies are. And as a result, you can kind of uh, tweak how you're approaching this problem a bit differently. So you don't have to necessarily be worried about the most sophisticated types of breaches. What you can do is do what, for example, Australia has done, right? The government of Australia has been able to decrease the incidence of cyber attacks penetrating their networks by 90% by just doing three things, right? So they're minimizing local admin privileges. So that just means it's really hard to log in as an administrator to a system. Mm. So small companies can, can make maybe only one or two people give access to that instead of more or less having everybody give access to that. Um, also, uh, automatic updates of both operating systems and the software that runs on them. Uh, so just making it automatic so you don't have to click, you know, remind me tomorrow or whatever. Oh, like yeah. And, and also having a pre-approved list of programs and websites that you can actually use and navigate to. So don't allow employees just to go wherever they want online, right? Um, if you can focus that down a little bit, 
that can make it a lot harder to go to these sites that are infected with these types of malware. So oh, anyway, that's, that I mean, doesn't have to be rocket science. No, pretty basic, pretty basic stuff. Yeah, pretty awesome. basic stuff, yeah. Scott, let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Scott Shackelford. He is a, an associate professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, where he teaches cybersecurity law and policy, sustainability, and international business law. We'll continue the three B's of cybersecurity for small businesses when we come back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us, Dr. Scott J. Shackelford. He's an associate professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business, where he teaches cybersecurity law and policy, sustainability, and international business law. He was also a research fellow at Harvard Kennedy School um, Belfer Program on Science and International Affairs. And uh, he wrote an article, a wonderful article, on the three Bs of cybersecurity for small businesses. First of all, he's taught us to be aware that we need to make sure our, that our employees, that the people that are using our technology at our businesses, on our, on our, in our companies, that they know what they're doing, that they understand and are aware of the digital threats, the different types of threats, and uh, they, they know how to handle it. Also, uh, he's been teaching us a little bit about how to be organized. Scott, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. You bet. This um, part of the being organized uh, kind of came to light in the the WannaCry ransomware attacks um, in, I guess it was in Great Britain and in the in um, mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. But one of the problems mm-hmm. there, in fact, the threat was they believed that the hack because it would impact your computer and then they would take over your computer and it would cost like three hundred dollars per computer to to have the hack fixed. They, they they estimated that it could have gotten up to about $4 billion of potential costs for all the mm-hmm. businesses that mm-hmm. were impacted by it. But this is – the big problem was kind of an organizational issue where – and you mentioned it earlier. A lot of these, these uh, computers weren't automatically updating. So they were running on old software. That's right. That's right. Um, and this kind of gets to the confusing world of what we sometimes hear as cyber weapons. Because really, cyber weapons are just, you know, flaws and bugs that people don't commonly know about in really common operating systems like Microsoft Windows, which was used in this case, right? Yeah. So that's why there's so much tension right now between companies like Microsoft and uh, the U.S. government, because obviously these companies want the government to disclose all of these bugs so they can be fixed. But if you're a government, you also see those as really valuable tools. Um, so there, there's been this balancing act for a little while as a result of that. Oh, boy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, to think that some of our our most important uh, facilities are being run on old versions of Microsoft, it just oh, seems scary. It, it, it's pretty bad. We actually have a Navy warship still running Windows XP. Oh. Uh, and Windows XP hasn't actually been updated since 2014. We were actually paying Microsoft just to develop patches for Windows XP just for our military instead of actually making the investment to go ahead and make the switch Holy to a more operating system. Yeah. So that's less than ideal. No, totally. <laughs> well, especially when we just hear of a Navy ship colliding with a tanker 
I'm sure it had nothing to do with that, but boy, I mean, that's weapon systems. That's, yeah, Yeah. no, it's scary. But also being organized, um, it seems like one of the most difficult things just for me as an individual is to keep all my passwords straight. I'm assuming being organized means businesses have to keep their passwords changed and tight. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. And there's, there's some programs that, that you can uh, use to help make that a little bit easier so that everyone's not just writing their passwords on the yellow sticky notes <laughs> and sticking them to their monitor. So anybody passing by can, you know, happen to see uh, see what that is. I see that occasionally, actually, even here in town, which is less than ideal, especially if it's a customer. that yeah. can kind of casually glance over and see that. So, you know, there's services like LastPass, for example, uh, that you can sign up for, and that uh, creates incredibly hard to guess passwords for all of your different systems and as a result you only have to then remember the one password to get into that system now of course that's kind of putting all your eggs in one basket as well because if that system is ever breached uh which of course you know that can happen sure uh then you're you can kind of be out of luck right but that that kind of thing can help and that that's at least it that's better i would say than reusing for example the same password if you're doing that now on multiple different platforms mm. um that that can that can cause a whole world of hurt if one of those gets out because that's the easiest thing to do oh <laughs> totally to reuse those for different uh well, and yeah, just for ease of use, it's yeah. I I bet there's so many crazy mistakes being made on passwords because you know if you're even if you're a a business with a hundred people, I don't know you you're you're oh, still yeah. probably not even aware of you know the, the the problems that that are even possible with your passwords yep. and and talk okay. about that because one of the things that. Um, like I, I've been, I've had clients like Lockheed Martin and Turner Broadcasting, big kind of media companies or big uh, mm-hmm. uh, defense firms. Also, I've worked with Intel, Hewlett Packard, and when you walk into these facilities, they won't even let you bring thumb drives, CD drives, right. and or even mm-hmm. your own laptop. Mm-hmm. And so, talk about allowing your employees to plug in anything into your mm-hmm. computer. That's right, yeah. And a, a lot of small businesses in particular still haven't taken the time, because, you know, frankly, time is tight, uh, to develop what's called bring-your-own-device or BYOD policies, right? So this is allowing your employees to bring their smartphones, bring their various devices to work, and connecting, for example, to your work's Wi-Fi network, all right? And when, when that happens, whatever happens to be on those devices, it's not that difficult for it to make the jump and infect other systems, right? Mm. So, you know, that's why if, if nothing else, if you still want to allow employees to do that, and plenty of businesses do, it's important at least to have a policy about, all right, if that's the case, then what safeguards can we as the business, we as the employer put into place to help make that phone, make that device, you know, more secure, including if that winds up getting lost and it has, you know, business data on it, having the ability to remotely wipe it. Right. So that's not just you know out there in the wild, as yeah. it's called. Um, so just doing some basic stuff like that and including uh, requiring stuff like, uh, you know, two factor authentication to sign in to various systems. That could that could really, really help make it a lot more difficult uh, for uh, both outsiders and potentially even um, some insiders as well to gain access to some of these systems that they shouldn't. Yeah. Is is it like even when you brought up two factor authentication? Uh, you know, Apple's been wanting me to do that for a while, and I tried yeah, it, and yeah. I, then I thought, what a nuisance! But 
It is, it's, nuisance. It is yeah. a total nuisance, which is why it's yeah. so much more secure. That's right. That's right. And this is why, for what it's worth, Amazon, you know, has been so reticent to use the two-factor on making purchases on its site, right? This yeah. would it dramatically increase security at Amazon, but it takes that couple extra seconds. And when you're a company at the scale of Amazon, that translates, of course, into, you know, millions plus in lost revenue for people that just don't want to take that little bit of extra time. So it is this constant trade-off between, you know, efficiency and security, right? Right. And we, we choose efficiency still most of the time, and we see the results of that. And so you, you've taught us we need to be aware, we need to be organized. We also, the key to this is to be proactive. There really are no excuses in the end. Um, ignorance isn't going to cover you. You're, you're either going to be mm-hmm. – but also, if we're, if we're going to be proactive, what, what would you say would be the key thing we should be you know, proactively focusing on? Yeah, I'd say, if nothing else, the, the most important thing is to have a game plan, right? So I, I wouldn't even think about it in terms of if a breach happens, but when it does happen, how, what's going to go down, right? Who's going to liaise with who? Who's going to be reporting with and working with law enforcement? Um, all that stuff is incredibly important to have. In fact, there's been a lot of litigation that shows that, in fact, that's a fiduciary duty these days. So that's mm. one of the requirements that managers have is to have this game plan in place and to have it regularly updated and communicated so that everybody's on the same page as far as how this is going to work, right? And luckily, there's a lot of tools that can help companies be more proactive in developing these kind of things that can also shine kind of a harsh light if there's any gaps. One of the best ones is called the NIST Framework for Small Businesses. It's the National Institute for Standards and Technology Framework it's a cybersecurity framework that's been out a couple years now. Uh, it came out from the Obama administration. But there was a new guide that was really user-friendly that was put out for small businesses just within the last year. And it, I think, frankly, it's, it's, it's really, really helpful. It has a lot of common-sense techniques, some of which we've talked about, some of which we haven't. And I think it's a tremendous resource for businesses. And all they have to do is look that up, right? I mean, just go look up that, NIST framework. That's right. NIST framework for small business. That's all they got to do. And just one other quick one I'll mention is that the Better Business Bureau did a cybersecurity survey for small businesses that came out just in the last couple months as well. And that also has, I think, some really interesting findings um, for especially especially kind of the scale of operations that we're talking about in terms of, you know, what, what your peers are doing, what your competitors are doing, and how you can learn from that to help make your system more secure as well. So I'd recommend checking that out, too. That's great. Good stuff. Well, Scott, thank you for your great work and uh, time um, and just insights. Again, be aware, be organized, be proactive. Dr. Scott Shackelford, uh, an associate professor at the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. Appreciate his time. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up hour number one of the program. This is the program to help you, you know, lead a healthier, happier, cyber secure life. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, technology, um, cybersecurity aside, the neat thing about technology is we just keep finding more and more amazing discoveries. Apparently, NASA has found a few new planets. So it says, NASA has found new evidence of uh, 219 planets outside of our solar system. Ten of those are 
exoplanet. So everything outside of our solar system is an exoplanet. Mm. Ten of those appear to be similar to the size of Earth and orbit their stars in, in the habitable zone. Okay. Which is not too hot, not too we cold. We call that the H zone. The Goldilocks zone. So just far enough away to develop water, but not far enough that they freeze. It can, if confirmed, this would be adding to the small number of growing lists of Earth-sized planets that occupy our corner of the Milky Way galaxy, supporting the idea that rocky worlds are more common than we once thought. Interesting. So Originally, there's many they, places we could go. So the potential discovery of part of the final catalog of results being released from the first Kepler Space Telescope mission. Kepler has been serving the the bunch of different constellations since 2009 and during that time scientists have found more than 5,000 potential exoplanets in an area of the sky around 3,000 light years away from Earth. Ooh, okay. Today's that's announcement. The, that's the problem. Yeah, it's, yeah, they're out their way. So in other words, 2,335 exoplanets confirmed, 21 of them Earth-sized and in the habitable zone. <gasps> just keeping score. That's great. Great news. So we just have to figure out how to do the three million light years or however many that was. Yeah, once we figure out how to, you know, get that a little faster than the light travel, we'll be yeah. great. I mean, how hard could that be? It's impossible. I mean, serious. All you have to do there, is come to Utah. Some spec- You'll see how people can there's die There's some fast. speculation that the human body cannot survive faster than light travel. Oh, Others well, say well, it will. You know what? Yeah, what we'll do see. we know? We, well, we thought we couldn't survive going to the moon. Well, we thought we couldn't survive the sound barrier. Yeah. We thought we couldn't survive. We'll figure it out. You know, gallbladder issues. We'll make it through it. Good. Okay, great news. So more planets that we can't go to. More planets. You can relax. You may have an out. It just you may not be able to get there in time. Ah, good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you get a leg up in life. When we come back next hour, we'll be talking about happiness. Are we really made to be happy? Hmm. Interesting research ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the program, my friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Uh, Hope you're making your Tuesday a great day. Remember, it's uh, yours. Do with it what you want. But uh, be careful. Because there are people around you that will be impacted by your choices, of course. we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about happiness. And um, on the show before, we've, we've actually talked about how anxiety is – we've evolved to have anxiety because it protects us. It, you know, Being a little anxious about life makes it so you're more likely to survive life. So we have an evolutionary psychologist that's going to be joining us to talk about is that why we've evolved this idea of being happy? Does the pursuit of happiness actually somehow keep us moving in life? Is it a motivator? Does it somehow move us and to adapt and to, uh, to actually make life better for ourselves? Interesting concept. Uh, and we'll be getting into the discovery of happiness. Or is it just a pipe dream? Can you – do you actually – should you really be searching for happiness? Is that what you're doing or are you trying to make sure life is – oh, great song. Don't worry. Be happy. Happiness isn't the end goal. Happiness 
happens to give you indication of where you should go because yeah. you're happy. So go that way. You know, but I guess that's the idea. So right? what's interesting though is are you wired to be in a permanent search of happiness? And so even when you find it, you don't even know you've got it because you think happiness is always over the next mountain. Right. And the search for happiness keeps you in this journey of life. Hmm. It's a pretty interesting little uh, theory. What do you think? I I think there's something to it yeah. because some of the research shows that, like you were just saying, happiness ought not be your end goal. What happens when you achieve whatever is yeah. going to make you happy? Well, and then yeah. you're just you're done. You you call it quits, or well, I mean, you have to go on. Humans so. are horrible at identifying what makes them happy, right? Because we think eating ice cream all day makes us happy till you do it. So and should you're we? Just sick. But you always look back fondly on that. Not not if you've been sick. <laughs> then you're like, I shouldn't have done that. Should we reach for happiness, or should we reach for okay? Well, yeah, maybe, and maybe part of that is just recognizing that your pursuit of happiness is a natural instinct, a driver that you have, but. It, it doesn't need to always consciously drive you. Is there a way we can prove this theory right? Theory today. I don't know. We'll see. Because there's been all these people that are like, you don't seem happy when they talk to me. And I go, I'm yeah. fine. I'm not happy. I'm not sad. I'm neutral. And they go, you can't be neutral. You have to be one or the other. You're either good. Yeah. You're good or bad, happy or not. But I think yours, we, is, yours is different. Because when we have this conversation, I move to the, the not so happy yeah. portion of life. Then it makes you mad. Because they're talking to me about this. And then you noodle whip them. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, maybe they find happiness in ensuring that other people are happy. Oh, look at me. I'm making people happy. I'm the magical man from Happy Land in a gumdrop house at Lollipop Lake. believe he meant that sarcastically. I think he No, did, yeah. come on. Yeah. No, Homer's a very happy guy. Just throw a donut at him. Happiness, are we really – have we really evolved for happiness or is it the constant pursuit of happiness that keeps us driving for more in life? Hmm. Interesting discussion straight ahead on that. Plus, of course, we'll do some empty news, uh, You know, a lot of information out there that you didn't even know you needed. So on the Matt Townsend Show, we like to bring you MT News. Um, first on the scene is what we like to claim, fifth on the facts. Facts are overrated if you're there first. So we'll get to all that excitement. Plus, oh, boy, we have a new sponsor for the show. Uh, You've heard of Fidget Spinners. Well, there's a book out now because, you know, Fidget Spinners are – they're kind of losing their their power in the market, I guess. I have some numbers on that. Do you? Good. And so we'll get to Fidget Spinning and the book about Fidget Spinning. You're not going to want to miss it. Well, I think it's just uh, about – it has a whole bunch of new fads that you can consider when you're done with your fidget spinner. Yeah, like when you're when you're fidgeted out, but you still need to fidget. Good stuff. It's a great book. We highly endorse it. Uh, that's all straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country we need to be worried about? Otto Warmbier, the American student freed from North Korean prison last week, has died, according to his family. Warmbier, 22, was in a coma for the past year following his March, 20, or March 2016 arrest, allegedly for uh, stealing a poster. The North Korean government claimed he suffered food poisoning and lost consciousness after he was given a sleeping pill. Mm. Warmbier suffered severe neurologic injury, is the uh, what his doctors have concluded. Uh, when Otto returned to Cincinnati late June on uh, 13th, he was unable to speak, unable to see, and a- unable to react to verbal commands, his family said. He looked very uncomfortable, almost anguished. 
Although we could never hear his voice again, within a day, the count, his countenance on his, of, of his face changed. He was at peace. He knew he was home. Is oh, what the wow. family, the, what the family is feeling. He was home, and we believed he could sense that. Uh, the Chinese tour company that arranged his visit to North Korea announced it will stop taking American citizens to the country. So apparently he was visiting China. And then he found out, hey, there's this like a couple day trip to North Korea. Let's do that. Let's he goes just do there, that. And that's where he got arrested. Oh, man. Boy, that's going to change things. Possibly. We'll see. Megyn Kelly's interview with InfoWars founder Alex Jones on Sunday night tanked in the ratings, even as the program generally received positive reviews from CNN, The New York Times, and the Associated Press. Nielsen data shows that more people ultimately decided to spend their Sunday evening watching the U.S. Open Golf Championship or a rerun of America's Funniest Home Videos than watch her show on NBC. (laughs) Oh, have you seen the one where the guy falls off the roof? Hilarious. It sounds really good. Yeah. It says, for some context, Kelly's show, her interview on Sunday, did about the same in the demographic as a 60 Minutes rerun. Wow. Boy, I hope NBC learned, because they sure went out on a limb on that one. They did. And And the limb broke. For the most part, people said it was it was a good job. They yeah. put it in the right context, but nobody watched it. Hmm. Tiger Woods is rece- receiving help to manage his medications. He says, I'm currently receiving professional help to manage my medications as the way I deal with back pain and a sleep disorder. Woods said in a statement to the AP, Woods was charged with driving under the influence after police in Jupiter, Florida, found him asleep at the wheel of his Mercedes-Benz on 2 a.m. May 29th. Breath test showed no presence of alcohol, but he told officers he had a reaction to several prescription drugs, including uh, Vicodin and Xanax. Oh, boy. That's interesting because when I need to sleep, I'm having a hard time sleeping, I watch golf. <laughs> well, really? there you go. Yeah. That's just, yeah you, you just think, watch you, you himself. you think he would just put himself to sleep. Yeah. Right. Mm. Now, he was in Jupiter, Florida. But I believe he told the police he thought he was in Los Angeles. Whoa. So, yeah, he was kind of out of it. There's something there. Hey, he knew he was on a coast. Yeah. That's pretty close. He picked a coast. <laughs> uh, this is from uh, stories that we have talked about in the past. Federal Trade Commission will file a lawsuit to block the proposed merger of FanDuel and DraftKings, dealing a major blow to two companies that sought to combine in order to remedy their shared business and regulatory woes. The uh, two other uh, day of sort of fantasy sport websites. You put money down, you pick seven players in a specific sport and see how they do. It's kind of fantasy gambling. Is the, that, that, that fuzziness on what exactly it yeah. is is the problem. New York has banned them from operating within their state. And uh, the federal government's looking at them like, are you gambling? Is this fantasy sports? We're not sure. They're in, there's some money issues. So they're trying to combine, but the federal government's saying uh, no because that will give you 90% of that market. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So they're in some financial issues. We'll see where that goes You're forward. in trouble. And finally, if you want to sell uh, fidget spinners, you need to bring bags of cash, apparently. As demand for the whirling contraptions continues to spiral, companies scramble to keep themselves uh, the, the claim that they're being hit with extraordinary practices at the overseas factories that make the fidget spinners. The ball-bearing weights that cause the spinners to move are in short supply, and some charge that Asian manufacturers are hoarding them and asking for much higher prices then uh, it's like roughly 25 cents a piece that they used to charge. So 25 cents a piece, you can make them fairly cheap. Now they're 
up like, you know, whatever the percentage high we'll, we'll see here. 200% yeah. more possibly. Portland, Oregon-based Zing, which sells two kinds of spinners, has been forced to bring bags of cash to some factories in China just to make sure its orders are confirmed. Zing Vice President Josh, uh, the Zing Vice President reports, the factories are asking for cash up front and the price varies daily anywhere from 50% more to 200% more. And he sells to like Target, Walmart, Toys R Us, so big retailers. Oh, boy. He's trying to supply... And they're, they're looking for like 200% more on the uh, materials to build the fidget spinner. That and another thing I saw yesterday, 538, the yeah. website, they had a statistical breakdown with graphs okay. showing you the decline in popularity uh. of the fidget spinner. They feel like peak fidget spinner happened about a month ago. Oh, we peaked out then. We huh? peaked at that point. Now we're on the downward side, and it's just not that big a deal anymore. Oh, boy. That's sad. These I is mean, it? Well, there's a lot of <laughs> really there's a lot of kids that fidget that well, needed these spinners. They and, probably have them, and but they're fidgeted out. What happens when you're over when you're out fidgeted? And you they're, just they're cheap and they break. You pick up a pen. My three year old was crying. Yeah, she had a pen in her hand, and I held her as she was crying. She was clicking a pen. So now it's just become this joke. Whenever she starts crying, I say, here, take this pen, and I start clicking it, and then she starts laughing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's, so. But now you have a pen clicker, a little cute little three-year-old pen clicker. Clicking a pen is one of the most therapeutic things you could do. Really? It's delightful. It's almost – it's not quite up there with the popping bubble wrap. Okay. But it's close. It's up there. It's one of those things that you're doing like – I if I had a pen in my hand right now I'd be doing it not knowing that I was doing it. You just it's just so natural to you. Yes. See, I know how to spin a pen over my thumb. I know how to spin pens. Not to oh, brag. I, can't do I mean, that. I don't want to be a braggart, but it's I'm it's I'm pretty good at it usually. And um it's it's my fidget spinner. Hmm. But I really like the pen clicking idea except for the fact that little noise like noises like that irritate me. And then I just want to rip that pen out of that little three-year-old's hand and say, don't be doing that. Here's a fidget spinner. Spin this quietly. I'm not going to bring my three-year-old within 10 feet of you. Yeah. That's the thing. That's the thing. Uh, Fidget spinning, you know, they're becoming a thing of the past apparently. But uh, fidgeters are searching for the next big fad. Well, guess what, folks? There's a new book out and that new book is sponsoring the Matt Townsend Show. So we like to play – we like to, you know – promote this book as much as we can. The book contains thousands of time-wasting activities. Can't sit still for two seconds? Looking for an outlet for all your fidgeting and are already tired of your fidget spinner? Well, then you've got to lay your fidgety hands on Fidget Fads, the new book that's jam-packed with flavor of the month time-wasting activities. There's a baby Susan, where you spin a baby on a lazy Susan. The Dignity, where you spin someone's toupee while it's on their head. The Digit Spinner, which is exactly what it sounds like. Ouch! There's even a chapter on how to spin a story by Kellyanne Conway. Alternative facts. Not only does this book contain thousands of fidget spinning activities to choose from, but it also sheds light on various clinical fidget addictions. Fidget spillers can't help spilling things. And you might want to watch out for fidget spitters. Fidget fads. There's absolutely no science that supports this malarkey. Wow. It sounds like a a groundbreaking, finger-breaking, finger-bending book. 
Oh, yeah. I, I don't know that I would try digit spinning. No, that sounded painful. But uh, Toupee spinning sounded interesting. But maybe fidget spitting. Mm, spitting on the fidget. Those are always, those are always very good. Well, uh, it's a great book. It's out, folks. Um, what was the name of it? Fidget Fads. Fidget Fads. Yeah, great. Uh, and a sponsor of the Matt Townsend Show. So make sure you uh, go to a Barnes & Noble near you. We'll take a break. Come back. When we come back, we're talking about happiness. Are we evolved for happiness? What's going on with the hell happiness uh, search we have in life? This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever heard that uh, anxiety is a common drive that we experience? It encourages us to get to work on time, to go to school, or to meet deadlines. Now, obviously, many people don't think anxiety is that great of a thing, but have we evolved to be anxious? And those that are anxious are more able to get stuff done and, you know, survive and even thrive in many ways in our culture and environment because if so, anxiety then, it's, it's, it's an evolutionary trait. We've evolved because we've had anxiety. And is it now possible uh, to take another maybe driver like happiness? And is happiness an evolutionary driver? So our next guest, uh, Glenn Gare, the chair of psychology and founding director of evolutionary studies at the University of New York, has taken a perspective of evolution and applied it to happiness. Have we evolved to be in pursuit of happiness, always seeking happiness as, as kind of a driver for life? Um, he's here to teach us today. Glenn, thank you so much for your time and your, uh, your insight. Hey, thanks so much for having me on today, Matt. You bet. So talk to us about this. Um, there, there is some pretty interesting insight, and, and it does seem like a lot of us are more and more anxious and, and almost fearful about about life. So that kind of seems like a natural connection to to evolutionary psychology. Talk to us about happiness and evolutionary psychology. Sure. So um, so maybe I can briefly introduce the concept of evolutionary psychology. Yes. It's something that I, I've written about pretty extensively and something that I teach about um, to my students here. And it's basically the idea that to understand the nature of human psychological processes and behavioral patterns and things like emotional states, we need to sort of step back and think about our evolutionary origins, um, which has a lot of implications. First off, that perspective suggests that things that are common in humans, especially across different cultures, may have some kind of adaptive value because mm. they would have, um, that would mean that they would have passed the test of natural selection and that's why they would have become species typical. Um, so for instance, fear of heights is a very common phobia. Fear of snakes is a very common phobia. And our ancestors who were um, not afraid of snakes compared to the ones who were, were probably more likely mm. to get bitten and die. Yeah. For instance. Um, so this is how we can understand that kind of thing from an evolutionary perspective. So taking the evolutionary perspective and looking at the nature of emotions, we can actually gain a lot of great insights into why the emotion system is the way that it is. And we can start asking questions such as, um, is the pursuit of happiness the end goal that people sort of should necessarily 
be moving toward, or is it um, is life and behavior a bit more complex than that? Hmm. No, I like that. That's and and that. I guess. I mean, when we think about it, it makes sense that like fears um, and and even I guess that that just anxiety to get something done and to be productive every day. It's it's just a natural driver. And, and do you believe then in the end, happiness also has this evolutionary driving effect? Yeah. Well, uh, happiness is definitely one of the basic emotions, um, and. When you look at things that make people happy, and uh, I, I wrote an article in Psychology Today that sort of addresses this, um, and I'm sort of looking at the short list here that, that I was talking about in there. So food makes people happy, right? That yeah. feeling if you just sat down, it's just this big juicy steak that, you know, that's a good feeling. Um, sex makes people happy. I won't elaborate on that, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's clearly there. Yeah. Um, having good friends, going out with friends, having fun, success, success in social contexts, um, getting a job promotion or having some kind of social status improvement in some way. You know, not only are these all things that make us happy, but these are also all things that have clear evolutionary and adaptive value. Um, so we can look at, you know, why does happiness exist? What are the things that make us happy? And how did that relate to our um, what our ancestors would have been doing um, in terms of their emotions. And essentially, if, if you're designing, um, you know, to kind of put it this way, if you think about designing an organism, if you make it so that it's happy when things that help it survive and reproduce happen, you're going to build in a uh, self-propelling system whereby it's going to sort of seek out those things that, um, in approximate sense, make the organism happy, but in an ultimate sense, um, encourage it to engage in behaviors that would facilitate survival and reproduction. Hmm. No, totally. Does um, when, when you look at this, like, because we haven't really, it doesn't seem like we've heard a lot of ha- of of the evolutionary benefits of happiness, the driver of happiness, um, and its connection to an evolutionary kind of foundation. Is this is this a new concept? Um, you know, it hasn't, when you think about the work in evolutionary psychology, I'd say it's really not the front and center stuff in the field, um, as you, as you're sort of implying. So I think there's something to that. Uh, On the other hand, when you think about, or, or when you look at the history of scholarship on the evolution of human emotions, it actually goes way back to Charles Darwin himself. Um, so he wrote, and I believe it was the 1870s, a famous book, because all his books are famous, um, famous book called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, mm. which um, I often point to people as um, perhaps the first legitimate piece of scholarship in the field of evolutionary psychology. Um, and, and he makes a lot of these same arguments way back then, and he does it in a comparative manner as well. So he had the insight that when he, had, when he looked at his dogs, when he looked at his cats, when he looked at other primates, he knew that there was something similar going on across the species. You know, this idea of all of us being sort of um, related in some kind of evolutionary sense, he obviously had that, that insight. So he talks about um, <clears throat> the anger expression in cats, right? Like if you've ever tried to give your cat a bath, you know, you know yeah. it freaks out. It bears its teeth. It makes a lot of um, scary-sounding noises. Its its tail goes up. It, it makes its body bigger as, to the best it can. Um, those are all things that are really similar to the anger uh, response in humans and in non-human primates. 
Um, so he had this insight that, huh, if this is the case, then there's probably something deeply important from an evolutionary perspective about the nature of the human emotions. So fast forward to about the 1960s, and there's a really famous psychologist named Paul Ekman. Um, and Paul Ekman's famous for really doing the first empirical research to sort of document what Darwin was saying. So what he did was he uh, d discovered what he called at the time the six basic emotions or f six basic emotional expressions, including happiness, sadness, disgust, anger, surprise, and fear. And it was a very simple but important study where he took photographs of American college students expressing each of those six emotional states. Hmm. And then he took those pictures and he sent them essentially to New Guinea, where there was a tribe that, to the best of his knowledge, was about the least westernized group of people at the time that they could find. And there was some translator, and they essentially asked people in that group if they could accurately identify these photos. And they were almost at 100%, which is... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so pretty fascinating, speaking to just how basic... Um, the the evolution the emotion system is in, in terms of human evolution and um, so I, I'm assuming if happiness if we've evolved to have the emotion of happiness we've also then evolved to have sadness disgust anger surprise and fear exactly that's exactly right and and, and for me um, that's the big insight that evolutionary psychology has to add to the study and the understanding of of emotions yeah um, it, so it seems like a lot of, um, you know, we want to be happy, and people use phrases such as, as long as you're happy, do whatever makes you happy, and this kind of thing that kind of seeps into our culture. And that I, I'd argue that even seeps into a lot of psychotherapy these days, you know, and it kind of makes sense that it would. But I think when you look at it from this evolutionary perspective, you kind of step back and say, wait a minute, it's really probably very important and very natural for us to actually experience all these basic emotions in our lifetime. Man, and what a what an interesting way to look at it because in today's um, psychology world, we there's a, a movement in positive psychology about the power of, you know, positivity and a lot of research is coming out about happiness, a lot of focus on happiness, but in the end too, uh, I mean, I, I guess we could have a corollary uh, field of psychology for every one of those emotional states. Yeah, that's actually a really uh, intriguing way to, to put it. Um, and, and that kind of relates a little bit to the history of positive psychology. So are you yeah. um, are you aware much about the history yeah. of where it came from? Yeah, Marty Seligman and who is it? Chick sent me high. It was, uh -huh. I was at him. Yeah. So, but, but I don't know if my, the, the listeners probably aren't as familiar with it. Yeah, so so the, I guess there was a famous speech that Martin Seligman gave at the APA convention. It might be going back about 30 years now. Yeah. He was the incoming president of the APA. So that's the American Psychological Association. I believe it's the world's largest um, society or association of behavioral scientists and psychologists. And he had a, it was a really provocative and, and um, influential speech. He essentially said, look, Psychologists are famous for studying what's wrong with people. We're famous for studying things like mental disorders and anxiety and post-traumatic stress and all these things, and we put tons of resources and time and education into understanding that stuff. And he said, that's all well and good, and that's important. He said, but if you step back, there's tons of things that human beings are doing right, and there's tons of wonderful things about people. Um, and why don't we use our scientific methods to 
shed light on those aspects of what it means to be human, the mm. positive aspects of the human experience. And it, it was one of these like insights where you hear it, and you're like, oh my God, he's right. You know, people, people at the time hadn't really thought it all that way. Um, and simply with that, you know, with that speech, it was like enter positive psychology into the, into the fray. And it's now a course that's taught at universities around the country. There are graduate degrees in it. Um, and I find it a very inspiring uh, approach to, to human psychology. Um, but the thing, as an evolutionary psychologist, the thing that I've noticed probably most conspicuously from my perspective is that it's, um, it's an area of psychology that is completely divorced from evolutionary psychology. So if you look at the work in positive psychology, they're not, they don't have evolutionary psychologists doing that research. They're right. not taking an evolutionary approach. And, you know, as you can see from what I was talking about earlier, I think the folks there, while I think they're doing great work, I think they're missing something really important. Yeah, no, I, I think, and, and it's interesting too, uh, to to hold up, the value of some of these other emotional conditions or feelings might I – mean, so it's not only just about seeking happiness or avoiding sadness, but there's also dealing with other emotions that that we deal with. I mean I know fear is a huge part of our psychology and uh-huh. even surprise and excitement or anger. I mean th- these are all major issues that we're trying to deal with and yet we – a lot of us jump quickly to just the happiness psychology. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's accurate, and I think that probably a more holistic approach to understanding the human emotion system and psychology in general is to step back and, you know, think about <clears throat> these these other affective or emotional states and, and sort of get a better sense of, do we really want to make these things disappear? Do we really want to make them go down to zero? Or sh- does it make more sense that people, like you're saying, should have a better handle or a better um, sense of control over all these other kinds of emotions that do have some important um, functions for us as well. And I guess the the weird thing about happiness is um, it seems like, and I think some of the research has even proven out, that when you're searching for happiness, it's, it tends to be the least effective way to get it. Um, mm. And it seems yeah. like doing other things might help us is 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 I guess happiness it's kind of an illusion it's isn't it a goal that's changing yeah I think well I think it's a really interesting perspective I mean you can't just wake up one day and be like you know this is gonna be my happy day I'm yeah. going for happy you know right. just, you know that that would just be would be terrific um, but you know evolution doesn't work that way when it when it shaped human psychology you know what made people happy was essentially the acquisition of things that would have been beneficial in a whole bunch of senses. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, any, we can control our emotions to, to some extent. You know, I think there's something to that. Um, but I think the way that the human emotion system evolved, it didn't evolve that we could just automatically, consciously determine our emotion state at any given time. Hmm. And it also seems like, um, if if it is if happiness is a driver for me, it seems like the more I the more close I get to reaching this happy state, um, the more it will either you know adapt it to to keep me driving for even a happier state, right? Or it will um, I don't know. It just, it just seems like it'll constantly be evolving for me, 
and mm-hmm. life and life will be constantly changing for me. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Let's take a break. We're speaking again with Dr. Glenn Gare, and he's walking us through an article, Are We Evolved for Happiness? Uh, it's just intriguing to think of um, the psychological side of why we're happy, also why we're anxious, why we have fear, uh, and why we would maybe evolve these traits naturally over the years and time and even natural selection of those that were uh, less fearful maybe are dead. You know, they never made it. And so their genes didn't get handed down. But those of us that are living today, we've picked up a, a super drive maybe for anxiety and, and happy and sad and fearful. Interesting insight, helping you uh, understand you. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This song sounds so happy. Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, joining us today is Dr. Glenn Gare, and he's talking about his article, Are We Evolved for Happiness? Glenn, thank you again for your time and for being with us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you. When you talk about, I mean, you know, a lot of people just are terrified of the whole idea of evolution. and But evolutionary psychology, I mean, there's just some part of it that just makes so much sense that Certain traits, certain feelings, certain behaviors and emotions um, that seem to work and perpetuate life and keep you alive and and working um, would be handed down. And uh, one of those uh, we've heard about before connected to evolutionary psychology is anxiety. But now you're proposing maybe we ought to also look at other emotions like happiness. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think the the evolutionary psych perspective, once – once people get beyond concerns they might have about the E-word or yeah. evolution, um, but sort of once you get into the basic ideas of it, like you're saying, I, um, it does make a lot of sense. And, you know, students in my classes who, who learn about it tend to, tend to quickly come around to that perspective. And then it sort of gives you a whole framework for thinking about and asking so many questions about human behavior and psychology. So, so in a, in an interesting way, um, I kind of like it because it allows me to reframe these challenges. If if I'm feeling a lot of anger, um, and or 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 maybe I just kind of have a natural tendency to get angry, or a natural tendency to even seek happiness and be really positive and optimistic, um, I guess I could reframe that as this is just kind of how I've. Evolve. This this is a this is a trait that's really here to serve me. Instead of me thinking that every time I'm sad, or if I'm a very kind of melancholic person, that it that I it, I'm bad for some reason. It's not good for me. I'm probably not going to live very long. Right. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's there's something um kind of forgiving about evolutionary yeah. psychology in a sense. Uh, yeah. That I think that there's there's a lot of things that you go through in life that are not that great, and when you kind of step back and say, you know what, when you look at the evolution of of humans, this was this was part of the deal for for thousands of generations. I think there's there's something um, useful about that. Do you do you sense that um, the positive psychology movement? I even use it in my practice, and it's I really like it because it brings so much hope. But I guess what your argument is, yeah, totally. You you're not anti positive psychology, but you're also right. not anti understanding the negatives of the world. 
Right, right. And I got to say that the tagline for your show, helping you be the good in the world, I think that's terrific. Um, And I think that that captures, you know, what's great about positive psychology. Um, And so, yeah, I think, you know, it would be it would be inappropriate for anyone to be to be against that kind of perspective. Um, I think what I'm sort of going for is trying to, to advance scholarship from an evolutionary perspective to sort of help shed light on and advance the goals of, of positive psychology. Mm. Oh, um, yeah. So, so we can think of, in, with any scientific endeavor or scholarly endeavor, we can think about what we call the basic area and the applied area. And so, like, basic research is research just sort of designed to advance our understanding of something, whereas applied stuff is stuff about helping people are solving some specific problem. So I kind of see it as positive psychology, I think, is, is an inherently applied area where it's about, you know, it has a mission, not just to advance knowledge, but to sort of make life better for people. Um, and evolutionary psychology is a much more basic scientific um, area, which mm-hmm. is really just designed to advance our understanding of human behavior using evolutionary principles. So... Um, I'm currently working on a book right now with my uh, former grad student, Nicole Wedberg, and it's titled Positive Evolutionary Psychology. Oh, Darwin's, cool. uh, And the uh, subtitle is Darwin's Guide to Living a Richer Life. Huh. And, it's a, you know, and it's really designed to take the work of evolutionary psychology and you know, discuss a whole bunch of ways that we can advance the goals of positive psychology therein. Is it, that's interesting because... Um... Because we would have evolved really for survival, which is different. Surviving seems different than thriving. Right. So is is, is evolutionary uh, psychology more in kind of basic survival, um, but not necessarily – and uh, but not necessarily, um, I guess, creating a, a higher transcendent life? That's that's a really interesting question because I think positive psychologists are, are much more explicitly about the yeah, latter. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, but you know, evolutionary psychology has the capacity to to shed light. Uh, I explain say, that on, too yeah. on all of it. I, I think it really does. That's great. Um, well, one of the things I'm doing a study with several of my students right now on the evolutionary psychology of forgiveness and how that relates to apologetic behavior. Hmm. Um, so we're kind of looking at what are the conditions that really allow people to um, engage really well with their local social communities. And, you know, we kind of have this idea that forgiveness is something that exists because it allows us to stay connected to one another in small communities, which is obviously something that would help people thrive. Yeah. And, uh, and there's some research suggesting that apologizing um, when you've transgressed, it, it actually is something that exists across cultures, and it seems to have a real similar kind of function. So we're looking at the relationship between those as um, two sides of the same coin that are really the, have the ultimate evolutionary function of keeping people in a small social community connected to one another. Well, and it might also explain why they're so why why we would need to apologize to to stay alive socially but maybe why we also don't take apologies very quickly and we don't forgive as easily because we also have needs to be safe yep yep a- absolutely so so they almost um, are at odds with each other 
They are, and it's really it's very complex, yeah. Because especially you know if if you have kids and you remember teaching them about apologizing and say you're sorry, and it's something that each parent probably says a thousand times to each kid. Um, we know the difference between a genuine apology and uh, you know just a um, just apology just for the sake of saying it, and that's something that we learn about very early on, and we're much more likely to forgive what we perceive as a genuine apology compared to Hmm. a forced apology. And so that's another thing that I think uh, builds into our social psychology regarding all this. Now, an important way to think about this entire topic from an evolutionary perspective has to to do with the fact that under ancestral conditions, human groups were always small. And, And the best evidence is that groups tended to be capped at about 150 until maybe 10, 12,000 years ago when agriculture and civilization came about. So for 99% of human evolution, we were in small clans. Mm. And if you're in a small clan of 150 and you trespass on one, two, or three of the people in that group and suddenly you're on the outs with those food folks, you're in, you know, yeah, you're, a danger. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So think, and now we live in this world where we have 500 friends on Facebook. Yep. And, and and a weird almost uh, social delay, like the, the feedback loop socially doesn't seem – or it, maybe it is more immediate or it doesn't seem as immediate as it would have been back then. I mean back then they sure. seemed like they would have just hit you with a club. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly right. I mean you know, a whole other way that evolutionary psychology can help us you know, dissect our modern lives is how incredibly technology-based communication is right now. Yeah. You know, and we know that that was not the case for, you know, thousands and thousands of generations. Yeah. So um, your, your ability to write an email and then go back and edit it and then have someone look at it and then, you know, send it out the next, the next day after it's written perfectly. We, you know, our ancestors didn't have that luxury when they were communicating with one another. Oh, yeah. um, and, and Facebook, you know, your Facebook profile probably is your best picture of yourself out of about 100 pictures that you could have chosen. Um, so we're kind of getting into this weird, weird world technologically where we're able to present ourselves in this optimal kind of way that w- was not available to our ancestors. Mm. And it seems like um, we also like we, we hear of these people that can that go to chat or they you know they'll go to a comment section online and they're more willing to say stuff that they would never say face to face and they feel emboldened. Yeah. Plus they they make they make up their identity. Um, and their right. kind of their profile. So it, it seems like evolutionarily, um, what what do you see the future looking like as we kind of evolve using more and more technology that changes our existence? Yeah, that, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> a lot of the people in my field are are sensitive to that issue and are, are working on it. Um, David Sloan Wilson, who's at Binghamton, who's a, a close friend of mine, is a great scholar in the area. He's convinced that we need to, in every single way, create small-scale group structures and mentalities, even when we're talking about large-scale kinds of things. Um, So I know he's particularly working on issues of sustainability and connecting organizations in large areas that all have the function of um, advancing the goals of sustainability. And what his research is showing is that those groups that function best are the ones that um, adopt a small-scale group model, even if they have 500 employees or Mm. so. Um, So it's kind of like we need to 
go out of our way to create small-scale um, perspectives and, and living opportunities, even if we are in really large groups. So uh, I'm in a university um, setting. You know, we have some large classes, but we like to have small classes. We like to have uh, student clubs that have a small number of groups where, you know, they get to know each other for over longer hmm. periods of time. So you, you really have to, in the modern day and age, we need to um, force ourselves to create small-scale context because that's what our minds are adapted to experience. Oh, interesting. And and yet we we might be creating a context with technology where you can have, you know, I just did a speech with about a thousand people on the call, wow. but none of us were together, right? And right. so it's so it seems like it's big group, but you, everyone's alone, and mm-hmm. and yet uh, so so their interactions are different. And boy, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't, I have not, I've never heard of this need to keep the the scale or the size of the group being so important. Yeah, yeah. So it's a really interesting thing. So, you know, the technology, you know, one thing is there's no going back. I mean, I think we all know that there's absolutely no going back. So we just need to, you know, when we have a technology advance, we need to step back and think about, you know, what's best for humans from an evolutionary perspective before we just go full guns and, and, you know, lose it. Because in terms of, I'll tell you, in terms of food production, I think that we've done a very bad job, you know, because when, when humans got into, um, processed food production, all we did was find stuff that was easy to make, mm. easy to grow, that tasted good, yeah. and and we could produce cheaply. And, you know, that was done without thinking about how important natural right. foods are for people. And then suddenly we have an obesity epidemic and an entire society of people that are, you know, afraid of eating fruits and vegetables. That's right. And uh, t- tomorrow I go in to have my gallbladder out because I've just blown it up. Wow. <laughs> so it's but the reality is it's isn't that interesting that we don't if we don't take into account how we how we became who we are and how we've come to be who we are then you're you're not leading forward you're just blindly going to the slaughter. Yeah, exactly. So I I think that what we know about human evolution is so much right now and I think taking that into account at every step where technology advances is going to ultimately be to our best interest. Powerful. Powerful stuff. Well, Glenn, we appreciate your insight. Glenn, uh, Glenn Gare is his name, and uh, he's, he really is, I mean, again, we, people have issues with evolution and the whole E word, but in the psychology world, there's a lot to know about those generations of humans that have gone before you, right, and have helped shape who you are and why you have anxiety, why you have happiness, why you get depressed. All of these are traits that have have evolved and come with us, and they help us understand who we are today, and we'll need them to move forward. Um, So maybe don't get as hung up on the E-word, and instead, see what you can learn, see what applies, see what works. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. For all of our talk about evolutionary psychology, you still do wonder how some people are alive today because they keep making mistakes that you think, you know, that should have, you know, what is it? Selection of the fittest, survival of the fittest should have 
eliminated these people a long time ago. For example, New Jersey authorities say a driver fled the scene of an accident with a fire hydrant stuck to his car. And then he tossed it in the trash. Parsippany police say the motorist drove off after his car struck the hydrant and the mailbox on Tuesday. Police followed the trail of water from the scene to a township. Oh, oh boy. There he goes. There it is. Sparks. Man, I tell you. They followed the trail of water from the scene to a township home where they found the car and the hydrant. The driver was found in a nearby diner. What? I was just eating dinner. Just eating dinner. Who put that hydrant on my car? Police say 27-year-old township resident Domingo Moreno has been charged with criminal mischief, hindering apprehension, and tampering with evidence. Police are investigating the cause and other details of the crash. Apparently, the hydrant was then found in like a trash can. I mean, what? I mean, hydrants aren't easy to carry. You had to have noticed, like, something's wrong with my car. What's with all the sparks flying as I'm dragging a hydrant under my car? Again, I'm telling you, something, maybe that is the argument against evolution because that guy maybe shouldn't be alive. He shouldn't, you know, he shouldn't be alive. Anyway, crazy stuff. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. My, oh, my, have we got a great show for you today. Of course, uh, locked and loaded with um, our talk about exercise. And they're finding out that if you walk 30 minutes a day, it slashes cancer deaths by half. You walk? I walk every day. Well. You try to? Almost every day. How long do you walk for? I walk for an hour. Wow. So is that like double? It's like double the cancer. So I would like have no cancer risk. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Cancer-proof mat. Cancer-proof. And luckily, it's starting to warm up. So, you know, you get the 85 mile an hour or 85 mile, 85 degree temperatures where I can go walk and sweat out the cancer. Mm, nice. Would you ask, would you ask uh, your guest this? Yeah. If you do an hour, if it just obliterates it completely? Yeah, I'm going to bet it doesn't. And it makes it sound like it. It uh, slashes cancer deaths in general, not just yours. Wouldn't so like you walking makes a difference for everybody. That, that's a great point. I bet it does, though, because they're like, oh, man, if for you your can wife, do it, anyone can do it. For your wife, it helps her life, gets you out of the house. Yeah, yeah. She always like, hey, don't you want to go out on a walk by yourself? No, I'm good. I'm just watching TV. Boy, that's kind of rude. Uh, we're talking Slashing cancer death by walking. That's a pretty cool uh, research study. Um, We'll get into that. Plus, of course, a lot of other headlines, things you didn't even know you needed to know. But uh, like, for example, can a police dog be too nice? I've been on the scene when I was an EMT way back in the day when police dogs had just pulled people out of like bushes. Mm. And it is the scariest thing ever to be near those dogs because they're not nice. So what do you do with a dog that's too nice? 
What do you do with that cute little pooch? Put him in the movies. Put him in the movies. He'll do the police movies. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. So we'll be talking about that empty news up next. Also, of course, today we'll visit with our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. And, of course, a hero of the day. All of that straight ahead. But first, to the headlines around the country. Terry, what should we be paying attention to? Police in Virginia say it appears the case of road rage led to the death of the 17-year-old Nebra Hassan and the Muslim teenager went missing on her way back to the Al Dulles Area Muslim Society Center on Sunday. Her remains were found that afternoon not far away from the center. Darwin Martinez Torres, 22, arrested and charged with murder Monday in connection to the case. In a statement, Fairfax County Police say that the 17-year-old's death appears to be the result of road rage and incident involving the suspect who was driving and who is now charged with murder and a group of teenagers who are walking and riding bikes in and along a roadway. Our investigation at this point does not indicate the victim was a target because of her race or religion. They were worried it was a hate crime. Oh, yeah. But now they're saying it's a road rage road incident rage. that got out of control. Mm, sad. In a unanimous ruling on Monday, Supreme Court decided that the government cannot refuse to register trademarks that disparage individuals, institutions, beliefs, or national symbols. Ah, so you can't dis- it, you can be a Washington Redskin. That's what it comes down to. The case centered on an Asian American rock band that called itself the Slants. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office had refused to register the name, citing a 71-year-old federal disparagement clause that was ultimately found to be in violation of the First Amendment. In addition wow. to having potentially amusing consequences, the ruling also would doom legal challenges to other trademarks. Many consider offensive, such as that for their Washington Redskins football team. The Redskins' trademark was canceled in 2014 on grounds that it's too disparaging. Well, that uh, they fixed that. And then I think South Park did an episode where they used the actual logo and the name and looked at looked in the camera and looked at the Washington Redskins and go, come at me, bro. It's not your, it's not your trademark anymore. <laughs> oh, brother. That's a big deal. I mean, they've spent years building that brand. And yeah. I mean, even though it's offensive to some people, right? Right. But they're saying the government can't. They can't say step they, in and yeah. say, yeah, they just their job is to trademark, not judge the trademark. Hmm. Okay. Okay. American Airlines canceled dozens of flights to Phoenix because it says its aircrafts cannot handle the scorching temperatures in the area. As of Monday evening, the airline had announced that more than 40 flights were canceled to and from Phoenix. Cancellations don't affect all flights by the airline, but will for regional flights that use smaller jets with a lower maximum operating temperature than most planes. A company spokesperson said that the type of aircraft used by the airline can tolerate a temperature up to 118 degrees Fahrenheit, while Phoenix is expected to see temperatures today of at least 120 degrees. What? That's hot. Passengers were told they could either rebook or get a refund. Oh, wow. Well, I mean... So I'm assuming at 130 degrees, yeah. the entire state shuts down. Does it? I don't know. How, how, do how you... does the Arab world continue? There's many places over there that, like Saudi Arabia, that it gets that hot. Yeah. They have flights. They well, I know, but they've probably built the entire thing indoors, like the ski resorts. Right. Well, not, not, the, not the airports. You still have airplanes flying in daily. Yeah, but maybe these are the, the airline uh, airplanes maybe, that need the entire runway. Maybe this is just bad planning by Phoenix because it's the smaller kind of low. It's know, the smaller the local yeah. planes. This yeah, that can't make it. The smaller jets have a hard time. Wow, it's tough. In other news, uh, finally, Demi Moore, the actress, has yeah. been having a rough time dentally. She re- she uh, revealed on the Tonight Show a couple weeks ago that she was missing her two front teeth. 
After host Jimmy Fallon held up a toothless photo she had provided, Moore explained that she had lost the teeth due to stress. Wow. I sheared off my front teeth. I'd love to say I was skateboarding or something kind of cool, but I think it's something that is important to share because I think it's literally probably after heart disease one of the biggest killers in America, which is stress, she said. So Experts so, say stress wow. can lead to teeth grinding, which can weaken teeth and cause plenty of other dental problems. Yeah. I didn't know this was happening. Neither did I. Well, you know, Christmas is coming up, so she can ask for that for Christmas. She said it, it happened. I think that's all she wants. It happened a year apart, both of her teeth falling out. Wow. But still, that means two years of anxiety and stress to the point where you're grinding your teeth and you ruin both your teeth. Well, my dentist asked me if I grind my teeth. And? I'm like, I don't know. I'm asleep. How would I know in the middle of the night if I'm grinding my teeth? She does say that she loves letting her uh, daughter see her without her teeth. Wow. She goes, they think it makes me look more vulnerable and more human. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people are missing teeth. Now, my mother, yeah. more of an, an, an advanced age, there's, you know, she has lost her teeth. So, yeah. But I just say that my daughter, who has no teeth, looks like grandma. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How does that go down? It doesn't. <clears throat> I get this. I get this look from my mom. Like, knock it off. Okay? Knock it off, you. And she'll probably be mad that I mentioned. But it's there's a lot of people too in certain generations where they used to like just pull them out, yep. get rid of your teeth. Mm-hmm. Just it's easier to have dentures. Yep. I think that's why they invented the pliers. You don't really use them for anything else but pulling teeth. Have you ever used pliers to pull a tooth? No, because they come out of their own accord, oh, like they, they should. Yeah. I've never used pliers. I mean, that seems pretty aggressive. I mean, I've used pliers for other things, fixing a finger that's broken, stuff like that. So for, for digit spinning? Yeah. You've been through it, Matt. Your yeah. kids lost their teeth. Yeah. My wife was – my son, his front tooth is now loose. Is it blowing in the wind? It's, it's there. So, But he's lost several teeth up to this point. Sure. But she, but she says it's a real moment when your kid's front tooth – Falls out because then you can see that they're losing their teeth yeah. and they're getting older mm-hmm. and time is passing. Yeah. But the other teeth, you can't see them because no. they're back in the mouth. Right. But the front tooth is right there it's front right and there. center. It's a, it's a sad moment. Is it? Or are you just making fun of my wife? Like No, I, it's, a okay. very, it, it's a moment where – and you have about 500 of these where you're like, well, that's probably the last front tooth I'm pulling. Right. But then there's the other kid that won't let you pull the tooth. Mm-hmm. So I've actually pulled a tooth in the middle of the night before. Oh, okay. While they're asleep? Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, because it was like dangling by a thread. Just, and, yeah. and like every time he'd breathe in, it would move. And every time he'd breathe out, it would move. So I'm like, I can't have that thing hanging over his throat. So I'm going to just – sounds like a window shutter mm-hmm. in, the, in the storm. Yeah. yeah. I also learned a trick where you just said, let me just wiggle it. Let me just wiggle it. And then the minute <laughs> they, you, they let you put your finger on it, you pop it out. Oh, nice. Mm. So now my kids don't – come near me. I have a Facebook video of my two nephews. The older one has attached a string to his younger brother's front tooth and he pulls it right out. Yeah. No, that's that. I've done the string thing, but I've never done it on a door. No. I just do the string thing and then I just hold it and then you kind of have your child on a leash, a tooth leash. Oh, it's sad though. I feel bad for your wife. But just know that you have a you have another baby girl that'll. Oh yeah, but that was, that was the first kid. Yeah. Now he's growing old. He's turning into a mm-hmm. little a little boy. Then they and then there's a point the, the baby. Yeah. There's a point that they start losing so many teeth. It just they just start looking funny. Yeah. 
I have a nephew that's missing his two front teeth right now. Yeah. It's really Oh, but it's cute. Oh, it's so cute. And then the tooth fairy comes. Right. And then, you know, lots fact, of money's lost. We were camping the last time the tooth fairy needed to uh, have some business transaction yeah. with my son. And, and she was able to find him camping. Really? I thought the tooth fairy hated camping. That was my thought. I said, how no, is the tooth yeah. fairy going to know? Maybe we'll take care of this when we get home. And he goes, no, we got to do it tonight. And bam, <laughs> there it was. Do you know what? Make sure, by the way, when you're looking up tooth fairies that you get a union tooth fairy. Oh, right. Because ours was a non-union Ooh. and it, he or she, it, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It just didn't show up as as consistently as it would have if it yeah. had been a union. If you want fairy. quality, go union. Always go union. Be, because ours like would would miss it for days, and then not give you all that much. And then the kid would keep bringing the tooth back, and he's like, "Dad, what happened? The tooth fairy missed it again." I'm like, "Darn union, we got to get him in the union." Um, yeah, but it does save money. Totally saves money. Uh, speaking of no money, um, Western Michigan City breaks a sand angel world record. You know, sometimes there's records that you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Congratulations, a Western Michigan city has broken the mark and set uh, that was set by the Guinness World of Records for the most people simultaneously making sand angels at a beach. To me, didn't even know this category existed. Don't well, even... Yeah, it definitely shouldn't. What do you mean it shouldn't? Well, it's a world record. Okay. How many people do you think would have to make sand angels to meet the record? Simultaneously, uh, think three hundred and seventy-two. <laughs> Not even close. Three thousand seventy-two. Way too many. Thirteen hundred and eighty-seven okay. people angelically assembled on Lake Michigan beachfront in Ludington on Saturday and worked their magic for thirty seconds. That far surpasses the roughly 350 who made sand angels for 15 seconds two years early, earlier in Pembrokeshire, Wells. Now, what about all the people that wanted to enjoy the beach? These no. guys were taking up all the sand. But they were taken up, they were overcome by sand angels. What about all those hole diggers out there? They couldn't dig any holes. Who's, who's digging holes? Oh, we did that all the time when we'd go to the beach. We'd just dig holes. Well, no, but couldn't you give 30 seconds to just be part of a world record? So put your shovel down, do a sand angel for 30 seconds, comply, be part of the team, and win a record. Or dig a hole and put all these uh, sand angel people in it. Wow. (laughs) That was violent. $20 was the suggested donation. They, They were trying to raise money for the hospital's cancer service center. So imagine if you got 12, 1,300 people donating $20. Okay, now this is different. You're just now bringing up the $20 donation. I thought they. Ang- I didn't know it was for charity. Now I seem like a horrible person. Yeah. But hmm. We've been telling you that for years. It's <laughs> Even sand though you've angels. only known me for know. less than a year. It's sand angels. They're beautiful. Again, I don't think a sand angel actually constitutes a real angel. We all know that snow angels are the real angel because the snow is white. That's true. And I in most in cases, yeah. it is white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. We won't even get into that. A uh, lot to talk about straight ahead. We're going to be getting into how daily walking, 30 minutes a day, could slash your cancer deaths by half, according to a researcher up next. Folks, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, healthier lives. Stick with us. We'll be back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nothing is more terrifying, I think, than cancer. Currently, treatments for cancer are expensive. They're difficult for the patient. And you're already under a lot of stress. Some of the the treatments include surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy. But what if we told you that there may be a free and far less painful treatment that can help you slash uh, the threat of cancer in your life? By 50%, joining us to talk about her research, Dr. Erin Van, Bl- uh, Van Blerigan led a study alongside um, some Harvard academics, along with uh, her work at the University of California in San Francisco, and uh, they're finding out the power of exercising to hold off and stay off um, the, the threat of cancer. Uh, Dr. Erin Van Blerigan, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about our work. This is pretty interesting stuff. Talk about your study and uh, it, apparently walking 30 minutes a day can cut in half cancer death. Well, so in our study, we actually looked at a couple of things. We looked at exercise. We also looked at diet and body weight. So we were looking at the American Cancer Society's Nutrition and Physical Activity Guidelines for cancer survivors and whether people who followed those recommendations after a diagnosis of colon cancer um, survived longer. So exercise was one component of the overall uh, guidelines, and it's an important one that has an independent beneficial effect, but diet and body weight were also important. Interesting. So in the study, I know you followed 992 men for for Uh, seven years. Men and women. Oh, men and women for seven years, right? And. Um, so in the end, it was exercise, diet, and uh, body weight. Yes. So, um, so the, the recommendations are to achieve and maintain a healthy body weight, eat a diet rich in vegetables and whole grains, and exercise for at least 150 minutes a week. So that kind of is 30 minutes, five days a week. Man. And so patients who... Um, did the best so the to achieve the optimal score in these guidelines is a body weight it's based on your body mass index so that's 18.5 up to 24.9 is the considered optimal um, and then yeah and then exercising even more to get the optimal score was people exercising for one hour five days a week and it's just a brisk walk is is, is the most common exercise and so those patients who were doing all of those things had a yeah, 51% lower risk of death from all causes during our study period, which was a median follow-up of seven years Unbelievable. after diagnosis. And yes. I mean, I guess this is what we are told, right? Eat healthy, uh, maintain a healthy body weight, exercise. D- does it, and it didn't matter, um, it was really 150 minutes of exercise a week was, uh, but, yes. uh, but really, so that's 30 minutes a week, but if it was, was it even better if you exercised an hour a day? So it actually wasn't substantially better. The you, um, People who exercised 150 minutes a week, so that 30 minutes, five days a week, um, had a big benefit compared to people exercising less than that amount. But you didn't get, you know, the, the risk didn't get substantially further reduced. So I think for most people, really aiming just for that 30 minutes, five days a week, is that's a good target goal. Hmm. And, I mean, again, it, it seems... We like to go to our extremes, and some people well, yeah, okay, but so we, how much protein powder and how much? But in reality, keeping it as simple as thirty minutes a day and eating your vegetables, it seems like those two things in combination would lower your body weight anyway. Exactly. Yes, 
And so those are the things that, and that the only thing in our study to add would be, you know, if you choose to eat, you know, grains, to always choose whole grains Mm. uh, over refined grains. And yeah, those, and again, that's another thing that can help um, with your body weight. So it's richer in fiber and and, um, better for your glucose metabolism and insulin metabolism. Is... Um, is this, is this groundbreaking research? It seems like it's just validating good old common sense. The same thing my doctor tells me every time I go in to, you know, to figure out my BMI. Right. Yeah. So these are, I mean, to some extent, you know, these are guidelines that have existed for some time. What is groundbreaking about this research is looking at it in individuals who had stage three colon cancer and then, and they'd all had had standard treatment. So this is not in a substitute for standard treatment. It's in addition to standard treatment and then following them after time. And really, so it's, it's novel to say, wow. you know, after you've been diagnosed with cancer, it seems that you can still have a large impact on your prognosis through these lifestyle behaviors. And that's, I mean, that's amazing. Stage three, colon cancer after seven years, 50% uh, slash in cancer deaths by simply doing those three things. Yeah, it was definitely remarkable. Unbelievable. Does um, what? What are your fellow colleagues saying? What are you hearing? I know you presented this paper at a big uh, um, cancer. Uh, a, a, uh, what do they call them? A cancer? Yeah, conference. Conference. Yeah. So we presented this at the American um, Society for Clinical Oncology's annual meeting uh, in Chicago. And so it's very, so it is exciting. I mean, there are some limitations to our work, of course, that this is observational data. So it means that we had people report, you know, self-report what they were doing on surveys and look over time. So there is some potential that, you know, those people who follow these healthy patterns had a lower risk for some other reason. Mm. Although it's, you know, based on our models and everything, we're pretty confident that we adjusted for those things. But in observational studies, you can never completely rule it out, you would need to do a randomized controlled trial. Um, and so that's kind of the next step of, of trying to move forward. Um, but I think, you know, right now it definitely emphasizes the importance of both for patients and for clinicians to spend time talking about these lifestyle factors and making an effort to at least do your best to achieve the recommendations. And it is this going to turn in, Aaron, to a treatment? I mean, because before it was probably just a guideline. Yeah, you know, make sure you eat healthy. I can almost hear the, you know, after you've had surgery, they're telling you certain things. Um, but this seems like this, if it works this well, could actually become the treatment. So our study does not um, comment on it in that way. It's because everyone who participated in the study, the approximately 1,000 people, they all had had surgery and chemotherapy. Hmm. So our, our data do not suggest that this can replace treatment. It just suggests that after you've been treated, yeah. you know, that this, then you have this power to maybe do some more. Did you, did you notice a difference between men and women in the study? So no, uh, the effect was the same in men and women. That's great. And um, so going forward, I mean, I guess, again, this isn't, it's one thing to be, to do, be doing it preventatively, and all of us uh, should be eating healthier, exercising, keeping our BMI uh, in that healthier range. But uh, to have the data after the fact that it, that it does, it, you know, it's an additive benefit as well. Um, if you had to weigh the, the different um, impact, is there, does exercise have more impact than diet? Does diet have more impact than body weight? Yeah, so in our study, all three things were important. I think exercise, ha- um, and actually of similar magnitude. So exercise is certainly one of the 
maybe I would say most important. And then for for the diet, it was definitely choosing whole grains and um, getting the five servings a day of vegetables. Um, for body weight, I mean, I think it's like if you focus on those behaviors, then, you know, you can help you achieve the healthy body weight because our data actually suggests that perhaps the body weight, even though it is important, um, a little bit higher BMI, at least in the data, are, is not like so maybe in the the higher healthy to low overweight category mm-hmm. is okay um but but it is still um much better than being um certainly you don't want to avoid obesity which is over 30 yeah. um, BMI yeah I don't know what it is Aaron but I just hate BMI for some reason I think I've just grown up hating that stupid chart um yeah. and even <laughs> because many I bet do. I bet a lot of people do don't they do yeah. um when you look at this uh, uh, I mean, it's got to be pretty interesting research because it seems like a relatively uh, not easy but doable study that they could do on uh, other forms of cancer as well. Yes, so there. I mean, there are studies ongoing, certainly, and I know at least for breast and prostate cancer. Uh, so there's lots of researchers who are interested in figuring out the role of diet um, and exercise after diagnosis. And when you talk about exercise as well, I mean, it could be it's moderate. It's 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 moderate exercise. It's not like you don't need to be, you know, doing level three of Jane Fonda's workout. You could you could (laughs) stay at the level two, but it's brisk walking. It's you also say it's heavy cleaning, mowing the lawn. It's just kind of moderate activity. Yeah, that was what the people in our study were doing. and, and, And that seems to be you know, the most beneficial. So certainly just aiming for that, you know, brisk walking. I mean, something that you feel like your heart rate picks up a little bit, you're sweating, um, you know that your body's working, but, you know, if you achieve that at a, a walking pace, then that's that's great. And that's definitely associated with benefits, it seems, in cancer as well as cardiovascular disease. Hmm. What do you, where do you see uh, this going in the future? What's your next study and what, how are you going to, what are your hopes of this one? Yeah, so I mean, the next step is really to try and do more clinical trials with um, of behavioral intervention. So it's a challenge, as we all know, to to even though you know, like you said, we've all been told that we should be eating healthy and exercising, but being told it and then actually doing it is another thing. So we're trying to build tools that can help um, patients achieve and and maintain the recommendations. So using things like apps and Fitbits and text huh. messaging. Yeah. Um, and I think so right now it's just, you know, early days of trying to figure out whether this is feasible and acceptable to patients. And then long term, you could use these tools in a big clinical trial to say, you know, do people who are given these tools have better outcomes clinically? Yeah. And, and what it seems like, because uh, there's after these events like cancer, um, you, you probably have a heightened interest and um, energy to, to actually set a habit, to make it happen. So it seems like how powerful to know that one of your hopeful, you know, possibilities of survival would be just exercise, diet, and body weight after the fact. I mean, it, it seems like kind of the ideal time to to find motivation. Yeah, certainly it is. Um, I think, it, you know, it's still challenging for everyone. There's a lot of things that people are dealing with after a diagnosis of cancer. Um, but it does, you know, if, if this is empowering to patients and hopefully that gives them a little bit of sense of control of their future. Does, I mean, I guess too, um, it's, I didn't think of this, but just the treatment itself, your weight, your exercise, your stamina, 
set you up going into this as well and maintaining your health because, you know, so many times you see the cancer patient losing a lot of weight, losing a lot of energy, losing the ability to do some of these things. So going in, I guess it would be better if we were a little healthier, but being able to keep doing it as we've gone through our treatments over time, I guess it, it, it helps us get back to ourselves faster. That is actually an excellent point. So that's another study that we're working on here at UCSF is to try and test whether some of these like tools like text messaging and Fitbits can help patients stay active during their chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a challenge because chemotherapy is so it's so challenging and, and difficult on the body, and yeah, it's exhausting, and people have fatigue and other other side effects. Um, but I think you're right that it's you know so a lot of people stop exercising during their treatment, and the data show that most people never get back to what they were doing before, mm. even six months to a year later. Um, and so one of the things that we're trying to do is provide support to help people. You know, maybe you're not exercising quite at the level you were at, but hopefully you don't completely stop. Yeah. And you can maintain a little bit, and that, that should help both with your, you know, reduced side effects and improve your recovery and, and maybe even improve your outcomes long term. Do you notice that um, – that the were you able to determine who who brought these – these activities into the cancer treatment anyway? Did, did a certain percentage of them already come in having exercise daily, dieting well with, with the body weight, and were they able to do it more consistently after? So we haven't, I don't have that specific data yet based on the literature so far. Um, I would say, you know, I think the data suggests only like a third of patients meet the recommendation. Oh, wow. Um, to start with. And in our data, when you look, and that's for exercise, when in our data, when you look at the diet, exercise, and body weight, less than 10% of patients were meeting all of the recommendations. Hmm. So there was a, there's a big need um, to help patients achieve these of guidelines. Yeah. And uh, then there's just got to be the other impact on mental health of I don't know of anything that could be more debilitating than a cancer diagnosis and then a stage three diagnosis and then chemo and radiation treatments and then the will maintaining the will to survive. But we there is there is a correlation I know between exercise and dopamine and serotonin and, and other mental health benefits, but there's gotta be a correlation there somehow. Absolutely. And actually, there's um, been a lot of data on exercise in cancer patients and survivors showing very consistently that people who participate in exercise have improved quality of life, physical function, um, psychosocial health, like all of across a lot of um, different parameters people who engage in exercise. And even if you aren't exercising to start with, but if you start exercising, that you can get a lot of these benefits. Good stuff. Well, great research, Aaron. Keep it up. Uh, keep up your great work there at the University of California in San, San Francisco. By the way, a killer medical facility as well. I mean, unbelievable. And she partnered with Harvard academics as well on the study. Great insight. And uh, again, we've heard, talked about prevention of cancer, but this is more if you've been diagnosed with cancer, getting back to the basics, exercise, diet, body weight management, um, after the fact, could cut your cancer uh, death by half. Unbelievable insight. We'll take a break, folks. That's what we're trying to do on the show. Give you the hope. There's hope in this uh, crazy world we're living. We'll be back uh, to talk more, do a little Coach's Corner, and also be talking to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. 
coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, today is World Productivity Day, uh, and staying productive is very difficult for so many of us because, first of all, how many times have you just said to yourself, I just don't have the energy? I don't have the energy to be productive. So what we tend to reach for is something that will boost our uh, our energy. Caffeine, for example. There is a very interesting article in Entrepreneur Magazine uh, uh, titled, Is Caffeine Boosting or Sabotaging Your Productivity? Are there darker, less beneficial effects to coffee that are canceling out the benefits and we don't even know it? Well, yeah. And uh, as a guy that used to partake a lot in caffeine, um, I've, I've cut back dramatically, almost to nothing. Now I just I – don't, I don't even seek it out. It just – when it's there, like, oh, I'll have one of those. Uh, I'll take a diet beverage. Um, but according to a Gallup poll, about two-thirds of American adults have at least one cup of coffee every day, averaging 2.7 cups of coffee per day, and 25 percent of them, uh, people claim to feel that they're addicted to caffeine. Despite this, only 10% of people want to cut back on their coffee drinking. So what's hard about this is we love coffee, right? It's a great – or not coffee. We love caffeine. It's a stimulant. It seems to uh, give us the energy when we need it. It reduces fatigue, many argue. It improves alertness. It improves our focus and boosts our productivity. However, there are some downsides to caffeine. For example, memory and cognition. The consumption of coffee is shown to improve memory and cognition and cognitive abilities. In fact, regular coffee drinking may even improve your cognitive function overall as we age. So there's a benefit, right? Your brain can work better. You think faster. Um, One of the reasons, because the caffeinated beverages, when consumed with glucose, sugar, improve cognitive performance in sustained attention and working memory studies. So that would be maybe uh, a a Coca-Cola that might have the sugar and the caffeine. Creates a pretty powerful combination. Downside, however, tiredness and fatigue. You may notice that uh, even though there's a benefit to your uptake and how your brain works, too much caffeine starts to make us feel tired, leave you less alert, less focused. And um, that that actually can create some problems as well uh, in your ability to actually keep your your chemistry up. Then you so you have to then back off when you when you have too much caffeine on board. Then um, you don't have caffeine on board, and then you start getting headaches and other problems. So, got to watch out for that. Some other um, problems might be sleep issues. If you're on, if you're taking in too much caffeine, it might be finding it harder to sleep. And then all of a sudden, you're not getting your seven or eight hours of sleep. Uh, that could cause problems as well. Caffeine also, as a stimulant, produces. Um, increases the production of adrenaline, that fight-or-flight chemical in the brain, which may make you more anxious, more prone to anxiety, more prone to panic disorder. So is it possible that all of these energy drinks that all the kids and everybody's drinking, is there a correlation between that and that chemistry stimulant driving up anxiety? Uh, then dependency. I mean, in the end, there's a lot of issues, right? So if we want to be more productive, you could just bring on more chemistry, But uh, maybe we ought to reduce the chemistry, moderation in the chemistry, and try to just figure out how we can get healthier energy, better sleep, better diet, as we just learned. 
We already know it, it makes uh, – it slashes cancer deaths by eating healthy and exercising. Maybe those things as well could make us more productive. Anyway, that's the Coach's Corner. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll be talking to our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. Welcome back, folks, as we just mosey down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Jerem and Jason are in today. Hello, gentlemen. How's life? You guys okay down there? We're doing good. Yeah, we're partying, man. You ready for the big show in uh, 12 minutes? Always ready. Yeah. Excited for it. Always ready. Hey, were you guys, are you, were you, are you guys fidget spinners? No. Uh, My kids, every one of my kids has one. Really? Yeah. Do they fidget much? Um, uh, no. Uh, Not anymore. I don't quite understand the purpose of them, but yeah. Uh, yeah, all my kids had to have one, so they've got one. So apparently the fad is fading, and fewer and fewer kids are fidget spinning. In fact, we have a, a sponsor for our show. It's a book about fidget spinning, and um, they give you other things that you could spin, like a baby on a Lazy Susan so it's a it's a lazy baby <laughs> spinning device, uh, and so that sounds terrible. It does sound or terrible awesome. or super awesome for the kids. The kids love it. I want spinning pods. Like, why would you need to go to like uh, you know an amusement park? Yeah. you can just put them on the lazy susan teacups. Those I paid one hundred fifty bucks for these. Oh, that makes me sick. The, the, the original te- yeah. fidget oh, yeah. spinner. Do you guys? Um, but if it's not fidget spinning, and maybe you don't have this experience yet because you're not as old as I am. But if I have one of more of my children take a water bottle and toss it, what do they call it? Flip a water bottle to yeah, yeah. That's still last summer. Honestly, though, they, it's not last summer. These kids won't stop, and I'm about to die because all I hear all day is bam, bam, bam. But have bam, you tried to do bam. that? No. See, I have not either. But I have to say, if I were to try it and accomplish the feat, yeah. I have a feeling I would feel pretty good about myself. Yeah. The problem is it takes 1,850 tries, 1,000 <laughs> tries to make yes. it work. So it's by the time that's done, you'll probably not be alive if your parents were in the house. Probably not. Is that bad to say it that way? To not be alive? Yeah, that'd be bad. It's kind of bad. It's kind of bad that way. Okay. So not fidget spinners and not bottle tossers. Okay. How about are you like uh, Rob Gronkowski who apparently ran up a $100,000 bar tab at a casino? Well, that his would not be me. Is, yeah, like that. It just seems like yeah, hundred bucks. You I mean, that's a lot of wings, right? I mean, that's a lot. Of, and other things. I mean, probably mostly other things. Yeah. Uh, could you Strangely. guys even imagine running up any tab to a hundred thousand dollars? No. 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 Boy, maybe because if just... I'm going to Vegas and I'm running up a tab like that, I might as well just plan on having my legs broken. <laughs> <laughs> and paying for the surgery. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. Is that is that is that a, is, would that be your wife that broke your legs, or would that be the the mafia or uh, somebody else? Pick one. Okay, either one. Well, Heather's in the mafia, so <laughs> yeah. that's a weird thing about the shepherds. My wife uh, is We're like a, sheep herders. Yeah, yes. <laughs> your your wife is a godfather. That makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, what's on your show today, guys? I mean, I know you're locked and loaded if, if as always. If you can't walk, you can't take steps. And BYU football is pursuing taking a step forward. What would it what? take in 2017 to take a step forward for Cougar football? We'll discuss. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. going to have, uh, let's see, David Nixon. 
on the program. He knows what it's like to be a successful player on a successful football team here at BYU. So what's, in his opinion, will it take for BYU to take that step forward? Well, we'll, we'll ask him today. Plus, we'll, we'll find out if his brother-in-law, Taysom Hill, what the latest is uh, with his chances of making the Green Bay Packers. And a new between the lines with Lauren Frankham, who's getting married this week, by the way. Between the offensive line and the defensive line, you laugh, you lose. <laughs> I lost. No, they, I, sorry, I just sorry, lost. Sorry, I you just lost. And you lost. <laughs> I couldn't help it. You just lost. I just lost her. It's gonna be fun. She's getting married, huh? She's yes. getting married. What do you? What do you? Do you guys go to the wedding? Are you like groomsmen? Or I mean, just got the reception invite. I opened up the invite. I was hoping for that little uh, note saying, you know, I was, that you're part of the that I was part of the uh, uh, actual wedding, yeah. but I wasn't. So. Uh, Boy. Yeah, that just told me all I need to know about it, our friendship. It, it seems like, yeah, it seems like, it seems like she'd want you guys to be the MC or something. No, she knows us too well. She yeah, want that. she probably didn't want you bringing out all the dirt, all yeah. the other problems. Year, years of stories and experiences. Jeremy could be the wedding singer, though. Oh, for sure, Jeremy. Oh, if you were asked, nickel, if man. she asked you to sing, what would be your first number? Probably five. Anything from five for fighting. <laughs> really. He was. We were listening to Five for Fighting in our pre-show meeting. Okay. For, someone brought up a. No, someone like sang like him. Or something. No, we we br- we brought up that the NBA has begun wearing their sponsor patches on their jerseys, and the most recent one was Disney. Apparently, is sponsoring the Orlando Magic, so oh. there will be a Disney patch on the Magic. How did that lead to Five for Fighting? Because the Jazz theirs is Qualtrics, but instead of Qualtrics, the the company. They are going to have their charity right. on the uniform, and it's uh, five for the fight. Ah, is that what it's someone a, it's said? It's for cancer, and, then, I started and then it turned into five for fighting. And then Jerem was playing music all morning long. Yeah. Okay, so well, it, it ended up being Rush again. Yeah, and right. Iron Maiden. Well, maybe, we'll to, maybe Jason's in this whole week, so we're getting into this awesome, you know, pre-show rhythm of certain music. Maybe this, maybe this is a sign that you actually do need fidget spinners. <laughs> Right, like maybe. they were banned at my son's uh, junior high school. Were they? They got they were so sick of them. They just said you can't banned. bring them to school anymore. Yeah, did wow. did you did they notice a rise in fidgeting? Uh, no, more spinning. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> so, have you guys uh, have you guys found Nickelback? I hear they're really good. You know what? What is this? Oh, five? No, here's the deal. I know. Everybody puts down Nickelback, and I don't understand it, because I, I have one of their songs, and I really like it. I, that's, you know what? I will take heat for this, and I'm fine with it. I don't hate Nickelback. <laughs> well, I, I just say, here's the deal. A glowing endorsement. I don't <laughs> hate Nickelback. But I Nickelback. don't want to say I like it, because then I really never will hear the end of it. Yeah. They were played excessively to the point of you know, mental nausea. Like, you mm-hmm. don't sell that much of your music if you're horrible. Right, exactly. Ooh, I don't know. They got their nickel back, didn't they, boys? You can, <laughs> you can be annoying but popular. Yeah, they sold a lot of albums. They're, I think they're hot. I, I, I think, I think initially they were very popular, but then they were excessively played to the point where everyone's like, Ugh, Ugh. enough. Who was the new Nickelback? Is there a new Nickelback? Like, who's the the group that everybody's like? Ugh. You can't be Enough. a fan of them. I thought that was five for fighting. <laughs> they never ascended to Yeah, I don't think that they ever got status. to that status. Oh, my Yeah, who's heavens. the Nickelback of 2017? I'm tweet that out right yeah, now. Yeah, tweet that out. Who <laughs> is today's version of Nickelback? Will, will you all, by the way, make sure you announce it on your show. Oh, 
Oh yeah. Okay. That. If that's we get, yeah, that we're going to change our Twitter question in this. Yeah, yeah, sneak that in. <laughs> sneak that in. See how everybody likes that idea. Music Sports Nation. All right, guys, knock them dead. The show is in five minutes. Five minutes. Excitement and joy. BYU Sports Nation. You're not going to want to miss it. They're locked and loaded, and they'll have the answer about who's the new Nickelback. Again, I'm not anti-Nickelback. I actually have one song that I love, and I play it, and I don't even know what it is, but it's on my, it's in my, it's in my array. Is, is the complaint that all of their songs sound the same, or what is know. the complaint? But it just What's I don't the big know. Beef? Everybody complains, like, but they they're all the same people, so their voices are the same, and Nickelback's got that kind of screechy sound. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't sound quite like that. Hmm. Hey. Uh, Police dog. Checked out this story. A police dog has been fired from his job, but for maybe the best reason possible. One-year-old Gavel is just too friendly to be in the force. The pup just loves rolling over and having his belly rubbed. By the way, who doesn't? Uh, Jeff loves that, too. Rather than standing to attention and looking menacing, the police dog in training failed to make the final cut for the Queensland Police Service in Australia because he's just too nice of a dog. But luckily for the cheeky canine, he was offered a new role welcoming visitors to Brisbane government's house. And Governor Paul of Paul de Jersey is made him the official vice regal dog. So the governor has of Queensland has said, "Good, he's my dog." How cool is that? And by the way, he now works for the governor. It's pretty hello, governor. Hello, governor. It's a pretty big deal. It's also for sale. If you've ever wanted to live in two nations at once, here's your chance. In a 1782 fixer-upper with thick granite walls, 1950s decor, and armed with the 24-hour security provided both by Canada and the United States of America. This almost 7,000-square-foot house cut into five currently vacant apartments is on a lot of less than a quarter acre. Along with the building itself, it straddles the border between Vermont and Quebec. So you actually get to live in two countries simultaneously. Selling a home in two countries is proving to be a challenge for the couple who owns it. The structure, which has an estimated rebuild cost of about six hundred grand, is on the market for only $109,000. It's cheap, but you're not going to make much money on it. Well, you could live there. But yeah, then, if, you know, some people that don't like Trump, you just move to the other side of your house. and That's then one of our sponsors, you live the in Canadian uh, Chamber of Commerce. Chamber of Commerce. If you, if you don't like Trump, you can always move to Canada. Uh, and uh, finally, our hero of the day, a nine-year-old hailed as a hero after pulling his two-year-old cousin from the pool. A nine-year-old girl is being called the hero after preventing a tragedy at a local school uh, swimming pool. On Saturday, Zoli Fernandez was swimming at a community pool with her cousins. And uh, on Monday, she was featured on the Apex Police Department's Facebook after being awarded the chief's coin for her quick thinking. I was swimming. Then I saw my little cousin floating on top of the water, Fernandez said. At some point, Fernandez's two-year-old cousin, Noe, slipped into the water while the other children played. And he had been in the pool several minutes before she noticed. So scary. I thought he was dead, Fernandez said. Through a translator, Fernandez's mother said she's amazed that her daughter was so brave and acted so quickly. But because of her actions, she was honored by the police department. They were able to administer CPR when Noah um, was pulled from the pool and revived him before EMS arrived at the scene. I'm going to give him a big hug because I love him so much, Fernandez said, of what she plans to do the next time she sees her cousin. So that's our hero of the day. 
Zoli Fernandez. You did it, my friend. How cool. Nine-year-old child still making a difference. That's how it works, folks. That's why we do the show, to give you some uh, hope in life, a leg up, some ideas to find ways to make your life better, and maybe just to laugh with us for a bit. We'll be back again tomorrow, Monday through Friday, to help you see the good in the world and be the good in the world. BYU Sports Nation is up next, folks. Stick with us.